Hey there everyone and welcome to the Doctor Who Show, episode number 6. We're an audio fanzine for those of you who haven't heard us before, where too much Doctor Who is barely enough, and I'm your host, Rob Irwin. How are you? What's happening in your life at the moment? I guess for our many UK listeners, it's uh, all Brexit at the moment, the past 48 hours... Brexit, 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 wherever we look. It's even affecting us down here in Australia, obviously, via the stock markets. Now, we're not a political show, so I won't take the conversation much further than that, but I will say to the guys and girls I know over there, if you need to emigrate, you know who to call. What else is happening? Peter Capaldi, he's getting around in a new costume. There are some pictures from the set of the uh, filming of the new series, and he's wearing a green jacket. So he was in the Red Velvet last series, now he's in a green jacket. You know, shades of Pertwee, anyone? I think so. And one thing I will add is, while the jacket looks really good, we seem to have gone back to this putting a hoodie underneath a a jacket look, you know, like Pete used to do with his original jacket, his magician's jacket. I thought we'd gotten over that when we got him into the Red Velvet at the end of last series, but no, it seems he's back into a jacket and he's going to wear a hoodie underneath. Maybe it's just cold on set. Maybe that's why he does it. I don't know. But it's not a good look. Pete, wear a classic waistcoat. Look like a mature doctor. This whole, I'm an old punk rocker, just doesn't really cut it with the doctor. It really doesn't. Anyway, write into me if you disagree. You know the address. Hello at the dwshow.net. Finally, before we get on to the interview for this episode, I do want to say for those of you who enjoy Ian Martin's A to Z, we unfortunately don't have an instalment of that this episode. Ian's just been too busy on uh, some other projects. But what we do have is Ian talking about the new Andrew Cartmel novel written in Dead Wax. This is a lift from Ian's own podcast called Five Minute Fiction. Um, don't let the title mislead you. None of the episodes actually go for five minutes. Uh, and he recently reviewed Written in Dead Wax. And so when he couldn't submit an A to Z for this episode, I said, hey, do you mind if we use that that piece? So if you heard our Andrew Cartmel interview last episode and were intrigued as to what this new line of detective novels are that he's writing, well, we have a review in this very episode. So do tune into that, particularly if you like the way Ian puts things in his reviews. It's quite good. Also, tune into 5-Minute Fiction. Look it up on iTunes or at Libsyn and you'll find it. Um, He's actually going on hiatus at the moment, but there are about 50-odd episodes up at the moment, so you can trawl back through tons and tons and tons of reading with Ian and uh, learn about some really cool new and old books that are out there to read. I've certainly come across some beauties through listening to the show myself over the past year, and uh, I highly recommend it. Anyway, plugs done. Let's get into the interview for this episode. Let me fire up Skype. We're going to talk to Bob Fleming, our own Bob Fleming. Well, no, we actually share him with Mark and Craig over at Prog to Who. And we're going to have a chat about the Seventh Doctor era, underscored by this uh, funny, crazy little book I recently bought and encouraged Bob to buy, by the way, called Wallowing in Our Own Welchmerts, which is the Auton guide to the stories behind the stories of the Seventh Doctor. Anyway, I won't go on about it now. We've got Bob on the line. So hello, Bob. Hello there, Rob. How are you doing? I'm very well, sir. Very well. How are you? I'm not bad at all. It's very early in the morning, very chilly here. It's winter. So, yeah. oof, you know, I it's think it must be 10 degrees. 10 degrees? That is quite <laughs> cold, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Australia as well. Wow. Well, uh... We're 16 degrees right now, and it's very close, very muggy. Does it get muggy in Australia? Depends where you are. Uh, you know, if you're near the coastline, you, you, you always have nice breezes. It's never that muggy. You know, you get a bit inland, it can get very muggy. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah, very, very muggy here. And late. And late. But it's all good. <laughs> well, I do appreciate it. Anyway. No problem. We're not here to talk about the weather. We're going to talk about the seventh doctor, <laughs> which is something yes, you and I are. have been threatening to do, um, not on the show, but when we've been chatting uh, on Facebook and so on, we've been threatening to do it for a long time to have this conversation. We have indeed. And it's finally come about. It has. And I guess what really inspired us to do it was uh, Milk Publishing had, uh, in in past years, published a book called Wallowing in Our Own Weltschmerz. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a, a guide to the stories behind the stories of the Seventh Doctor, and uh, it recently went on sale for some very low amount of money. I still had to pay a ton of postage on it, but um, be that as it may, I think we've both read it and had a bit of fun with it, and uh, it could be a bit of a um, a conversation starter for some of the the uh, episodes of the Seventh Doctor that you uh, you particularly like. Yeah, man. It's, it's a brilliant book. I'd highly recommend it. I think particularly for, uh, you know, I mean, my favourite era of Doctor Who, uh, as probably people know, is the seventh Doctor, uh, or his particular era. I love it. So this book, it's particularly, it's not aimed at us, if you see what I mean, as in seventh Doctor fans, but it's uh, aimed at everyone. But if you've got that sort of love for love for the show like these guys have, it's well worth a read, like definitely it's ace. Yeah. What age were you in 87 when Sylvester came on board? I was eight so, I was eight years old, so I was prime, sort of Doctor Who age, if you see what I mean. I was 12, and I was just getting into fandom in a big way. I'd watched the show since I was a small kid, but around 86, around Trial of a Time Lord, probably, I started to get really into the show. And so, by the time Sylvester came in, I was in this mad fan stage so for me this is an era that i remember very well because i was just so glued to it as a fan so i think we can have a bit of fun with this conversation i hope so because it is the greatest era of doctor who of all time (laughs) so says bob fleming (laughs) (laughs) well i'll let you take the lead now you've picked out your six favorite stories from the era and we're going to uh, discuss them so what's your first one bob it's delta and the bannermen i I love it and i don't get why it gets such such a bad rap uh, we're thinking about I think it's because I like bees so much. I'm a big fan of bees. So, so I don't know what it is. I think this is, I mean, the guys here, uh, obviously, the, these line, I shall ask the bees, which I actually love that. Um, and it's the, their sort of synopsis. They do a little synopsis at the beginning of each one. It says, having a, having crash landed at, at Butlin's camp in Wales, Mel and Samelian's become embroiled in the uh, machinations of intergalactic exterminator named Gavrock. I mean, that just sounds brilliant in itself. Um, I don't know why this gets a really bad rap. I think the plot, it's really cool and clever, and it's a lot of fun. And the casting in it's brilliant. So I think it's Don Henderson who plays Gavok. He's he's an awesome, disgusting villain. And he's, he's really quite dark. Do you know what I mean? When he's eating that bit of raw meat or whatever, he's quite a sinister character. And Ken Dodd, who was like, what? Why is he in Doctor Who? He's brilliant <laughs> as the tall master. He's just such fun. And he actually acts it pretty well. Um, the only probably person that I mean, I'm not a massive fan of Mel, the character. Mm-hmm. Um, not not you know, I like I like Bonnie Langford, I think she's ace, but the character of Mel, not a fan at all. But she sort of takes a bit of a backseat in this, which is good, and makes way for the potential Ray or Ace, uh, 
who was you know she was potentially going to be an assistant in this, who's also brilliant. And the dude, the, the Welsh dude, I can't remember his name, who plays a sort of uh, camp leader, camp leader. But you know, the, <laughs> I know the, the, mean. The, <laughs> the dude that's in charge, he's a stunning actor. So the casting is brilliant, and the story's quite like we've never seen anything like this in you know like this in Doctor Who before, well, and it's true. the start re- really for me of the Cartmel era. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of it, and I don't even now when I watch it with adult eyes, if you see what I mean. I mean, mm. I remember, this one really sticks out as a kid because it was it's quite a magical adventure, and even now with my adult eyes, I can watch this again and again. It's really bizarre, and I feel very alone, Rob. In this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you are very alone because yeah, no, I am. <laughs> <laughs> when we think of even just the ending, the the here's to the future song, it's just. It's it's so cheesy in places. Yet, I, I I get a feeling for what you're talking about because when I rewatch this as as an adult, it had been decades since I'd seen it. The the Tollmaster at the start, that whole scene, it had kind of a graphic novel feel to it, like the way it had been filmed, and it felt like there was a big universe out there that the Seventh Doctor was this quirky little part of, and 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 I, and I liked that, and the fact it's it's a, a very location based story. They're not stuck in some studio with eighties cheesy, horribly overlit sets. Yeah, uh, it gives it kind of a good look. Would you would you think those things play into to why you like it as well? I think massively, yeah, because it's because it's there's no sort of bad effects really in this because because they're using an actual holiday park. It's an actual bus. Uh, it's a big sort of sort of dirty warehouse at the, at the opening scene. I mean, some of the sort of shimmering effects, but they're maybe a bit dodgy, but it's of the time, isn't it? It's just budget limitations. But I do think overall it's quite a stunning piece of, of Doctor Who, this. Hmm. Is there any... Hmm. <laughs> 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 Are there any sections from Wallowing in Our Own Welchmerts that you wanted to highlight aside from that well, intro? there's... <laughs> I mean, like I say, they, they do. This is there's some long-winded ones in this particular section, but they do a little breakdown in the Bannerman and Vigilopoulos trifles, uh, and basically goes through uh, what you know what it is to be a Bannerman kind of thing. Um, and there's just a couple of bits highlighted in here, uh, like they are useless for any job, requiring stealth, even wearing default black and red. Uh, they're easy to spot thanks to those banners. <laughs> Basically, yeah, absolutely no stealth whatsoever in the attributes of the the bannermen. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just sort of like massive Viking warriors, aren't they? It's not like they're not they're not trying to be sneaky or stealthy or anything like that. It's just like right, we're going out and kill, and we want that, and we're going to get it. So it's quite a sav- they're quite a savage, a savage sort of uh, uh, adversary really for the Doctor. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, there's plenty of Mick Turk going on in the book about various bits and pieces. I'm looking at the next one. Who pays for the new colours every time they accept a commission? Army <laughs> uniforms and banners part of the fee. <laughs> it's, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, what do you think of the bannermen? I thought they were quite scary, even with their sort of them. Do you remember what you used to get them? And it's what they were, them sort of space specs. You know, the yes. little, like, headband things, but you used, when you used to wear them, it, give you, it gave, like, a rainbow sort of feel. They're, they're like, I remember them, I used to have a couple of pairs of them, and they're, they're awesome. But I think they're quite, quite a scary, particularly Gavok, quite a scary uh, a menace, really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's probably the least scary part of their outfit, those, <laughs> those glasses. <laughs> Rainbow specs. Uh, yeah, the, the, the costume itself, though, is, is, is quite good. Yeah, I, I didn't mind the fact they had the, the banners and so on. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, look, uh, this isn't my favourite Seventh Doctor story by a long stretch. It wouldn't be in even the top six. But I, I, I get what you mean, Bob. I understand. I, I watched this for the first time... Um, because we were so far behind in those days from the UK transmissions, the uh, Australian Doctor Who fan club would host uh, gatherings at Sydney University and we'd get in a, a, uh, a lecture hall and they'd put it on the televisions around the lecture hall. So wherever you were sitting, you could see a, <laughs> thinking back now, probably not a very large television by any means, but uh, you would get to watch the episode, you know, in this naughty kind of way. Like, oh, we're seeing this a year before we went to. <laughs> Class. Yeah, I mean, in return, we were sending things back to the UK like Pertwee and Tom Baker stories that weren't on video at that time. It was the whole tape trading. Well, like a, like a, I can say, like an international sort of trading, a trading sort of firm. Like yeah. sort of sending to, that's, that sounds kind of illegal, but good fun. <laughs> it's actually the uh, the topic of one of the DVD extras, and for the life of me, I can't remember which uh, DVD it is from the classic era, but there's one called, I think, Cash Lies and Videotape. Uh, yeah. little documentary and it's all about the 80s and the tape trading and it was huge with Australia because we had lots of like Pertwee and, and Tom Baker repeats that UK fans were uh, just slavering for if that's a word and uh, I think from the US I think on PBS they they got a lot of the black and whites even and they seemed to I remember in Australia we were getting a lot of black and whites from the US of the yeah. really old stuff uh, it was quite a thing back then. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, I, I saw it at Sydney Uni, and as a 12-year-old at the time, I, I quite enjoyed it back then. I, I have a slightly different opinion now. I imagine most people do. But yeah, it's it's the one, it's a guilty pleasure, I think, of mine. But I, I do adore Delta and the Bannermen. It's a pretty fantastic episode of Doctor Who for me personally and no one else. Which is always good. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, what's your second episode for us today? Well, the second one is uh, an all-time classic in Remembrance of the Daleks, which is the best, I think, yeah, the best of McCoy, um, and probably up there in my top five of classic uh, adventures, really, Remembrance. I think it's it's brilliant. It's when it sort of started, I think, the McCoy era, when this first came on properly. So seasons 25 and 26, um, pretty strong. Strong, strong throughout, and I think it's you know writers of the quality of Ben Aronovich sort of kicked it on. Um, it's it's class. It, it's it's amazing, and it's quite funny in the book. There's well, there's, we're not going to swear. Oh, I <laughs> can beat you that, if you like. It's <laughs> just a bit that you, <laughs> the bit you pointed out to me. But uh, basically, it's uh, their sort of synopsis is: uh, we take the Shoreditch, nineteen sixty-three, the Doctor and a new chum ace find Daleks waiting for them um, but it's in relation to the special weapons Dalek which has a special place I think in many people's hearts and when they've been doing the, the new new Who stuff um, and obviously they had that Asylum of the Daleks and you know we're going to bring back every single Dalek and the special weapons Dalek was in there and it was like amazing even though it's only ever been in Doctor Who once it's, I don't know why it's so loved but it's, I think it's because it's, it's a bit different isn't it and then when it shot its gun in uh, the 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 magician's apprentice or whatever it was in uh, it was yeah it was that one it it was like I was I was buzzing it was amazing uh, but yeah it just sort of it just sort of it has a bit about the special weapons Dalek and and just ref- refers to well what do they call the, all the other Daleks do you know what I mean is it, are they all called I'm not gonna I can't, I'm gonna I'm gonna you do can something do it, here Bob. actually I'll believe you. Are you sure? This is the first time I've I've properly sworn on a Doctor Who podcast. Um, They call them (laughs) weapons Daleks. 
And, that, <laughs> and that's the reason why I bought this book when you were explaining it to me about it. So all the other Daleks are shit weapons Daleks, which I just thought was brilliant. Because, yeah, the, the, this Dalek, it's the one. It's the one and only amazing special weapons Dalek. And all the other ones are shit, apparently, according to this book, which I thought was, was brilliant. But the thing that stands out in, in the book, they do like a, a bit of a scene. So obviously it's when the Doctor's obviously got the, the coffin with the hand of Org, Omega. And it's, it's when the Doctor taking it to a funeral parlour. Uh, so it's, it starts with Orton, good day, my boy, and the, the cockney undertaker. Hello, Gav, what can I do for you? Uh, you rather think you've got a perfect man to help me, yeah? Uh, and the cockney's like, I've got this all completely wrong. Basically, without going through it, because it's really long, isn't it? I'm actually just going through this now. I'm looking at it now, yeah. That's a- There's a Welsh undertaker. Yeah, maybe I should bit in a bit more and I could chew off two, right now. Two and a half pages, I think, yeah, Bob. It is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just noticed that then, but it did make me chuckle a hell of a lot. But that's why you all need to buy the book. Because you can read it yourself, it's ace. But yeah, it just goes through, you know, how what it must have been like for the guys to sort of try and convince this undertaker to take in the hand of Omega, and it's funny. It is. It is. What do we What do we make of that? The fact that the Doctor would have gone to this fella and said, "Oh, we want to bury this," and you know, there's there's no other uh, people around, and it would seem very strange, I imagine, to that. Uh, to it that would. But I think. Well, when they, they, when they do it in such a way, though, it sort of obviously it's very funny, but it's they, they do it in a way where you can actually sort of imagine it. So, but the basically, I think most of this book they're sort of putting everything from that's a bit daft, if you see what I mean, into a context of reality, mm. which which is where they draw the comedy from. But yeah, it was <laughs> you can imagine it, can't you? Do you know what I mean? The whole conversation of them going in and doing this. Oh, absolutely. Now, in, t- in terms of an episode itself, right from the, the start, right from that ship approaching Earth in a sort of Star Wars style, yeah. I, th- I thought, is this the same show as last year? What, yeah. what is happening? Is this, how do you felt? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, it was just, I mean, I, at the time, the effects were absolutely fine. You know, I did not pick up on them at all. Um, obviously, I didn't really pick up, pick up on them from any of Classic Who anyway as a kid. But even now, for me, I think, you know, they do stand up. If you think it was the late 80s and this was on a budget of Coronation Street or, you know, a soap opera, mm. the effects they were pulling out were, were fantastic. Particularly Robert Dallas, it did, like you say, it felt like a new show, like they were taking it seriously. Absolutely. Which was a happy accident because the BBC weren't, obviously. <laughs> um, but fortunately, uh, you know, John Nathan Turner had not given up, but he'd put his faith into someone else, in Andrew Cartmel, and, you know, and a, a younger sort of script editor, more enthusiastic person with better ideas and, and that kind of thing. And this is when it starts to come to fruition that, and that paying off mm. um, because it did need a big overhaul. I mean, it, I mean the Colin Bakery was, was, in my opinion, horrendous, most of it. I mean, not his fault, but you had, you know, a JNT was struggling a lot with Eric Sayward. Do you know what I mean? And that, that trans, you know, transmitted onto the show, I, believe, I, I think, anyway. And then you've got a whole new relationship here. You've got a youth, a young man, coming in, bringing in other young people and sort of being more relevant to the time. And this is where it kicks off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it shows how important the script editor is, both in terms of what Cartmel brought, but also when we think of Eric Sayward, when he was engaged and happy with Doctor Who, I think he produced better work, either his own or the way he was editing other people. But when Colin Baker came in and he didn't like Colin Baker and he didn't like that costume... And he didn't want to be there, and he wasn't having a good time with JNT. And JNT kept going to US conventions. I can see how he felt. Yeah. Um, 
maybe he should have just chucked the job in at that point and said, well, this isn't for me. But instead, he, he sort of let his um, negativity bleed out into the show. It did It did continue, and it, it, it shouldn't have done, really. But this is why, you know, the, the sort of 16-month break and a breath of fresh air in a, in a younger a younger man, um, not being ageist, if you see what I mean, but that's what he needed. He needed someone who was relevant, uh, who understood, the, you know, what was going on in the time to try and put that on a screen. And... You know, so people could associate with it, and that's what Andrew Cartman and his team of, of fellow writers and people did, and that uh, you know, and they got different you know companies outsourced to produce, and they were doing they were doing really good work, and this is where it kicks off, like we say, with Remembrance of the Daleks. <laughs> I tell you another effect I liked. You know, I liked that opening shot with um, the, the the radio broadcast and so on as the, the ship approached Earth. Yeah. But early on, when the Dalek is holed up in the in the junkyard and it shoots that guy. And we see his skeleton briefly flash, and it, it's no longer your father's yeah. Dalek effect. I was like, "What is going on again? Is this the same show as last year? <laughs> is it's, what is and happening?" It's re- and it's really well paced. It's really exciting, and this is what we get. I think from from now on, you know, now on with Doctor Who, it's the the pacing's good. You don't get bored. And I mean, the revelation when the Dalek goes upstairs for the first time. Mm. My God, I I, I screamed screamed as a child when that happened because it was like that that made them scary again if you know what i mean it, it took out the comedy element of you know so yeah i can just run upstairs and they can't come after me and it started well not hovering but sort of wobbling upstairs on this whatever system <laughs> we had on it was a i mean that was a massive revelation in doctor who at the it time was. it was huge uh and then when it came when it came back in dalek and you sort of levitate for the first time i was like i've already seen that before do not matter do you know what <laughs> exactly. i mean it was like Uh, And this is what this gives us. It gives us the first flying Dalek on television. Yeah, no, very special. And and again, going back to the Dalek in the junkyard, that's a Dalek acting like a Dalek should. You know, in so many other stories, they stand around getting cranky with people and saying they'll exterminate them, and they never do, you know. Yeah, and bang, bang, it it makes them scary. If if they don't do what they're going to say, and they're just shouting exterminate, it kind of just... takes them completely it makes them silly and what like what the, what they are silly pepper pots if you know what i mean yeah. uh and i think this is where they start to add a, a bit more character to the daleks in from the point of view is in you know you've got the two different fractions of the daleks you've got the rebels and the, the empire if you like and it gives it a bit more character and and obviously having davros in a dalek adventure is always a, a superb bonus especially with terry terry malloy because i love terry malloy's davros mm. We're quickly rattling through these six stories, so anything to add on Remembrance of the Daleks? Not for me, not for me. It's just, it's a classic, a class classic. Yeah, absolutely. What's your number three, Bob? Ah, The number three is the uh, anniversary special, Silver Nemesis, the 25th anniversary special. Oh, I'm sorry. Which... Well, I could not include it because it was an anniversary, like I said, an anniversary special. It was 25 years of Doctor Who. And I remember, and well, the book is about it, first of all, the uh, the little dialogue bit is, we ride to destiny. <laughs> and it's overdramatic and uh, amazingly, amazingly overdramatic way. Uh, and the synopsis is, a Nazi with a bow and a loony with an arrow get caught up in jazz safari park, cybermen and social workers. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I I remember this. Uh, you know, obviously, I remember this massively because I I love the Cybermen, yes. Particularly these Cybermen. Um, you know, in the, in the sort of eight, the eighty Cybermen where they had the the costume change and the deeper voices and all that kind of stuff, and the sort of made them quite scary again. I mean, this is insane. This is literally, it's mental. It's a bit panto. This one. 
I think. Possibly because of maybe JNT had a bit more involvement in it, if you see what I mean. Do you think there are just too many elements in this story? <laughs> there's there's a lot of elements and there's a lot of overacting, massively overacting. Partic- well, particularly from, I can't remember what she was called, the Lady Lady. What was she called? Lady Pennyfor, wasn't it? Was it Lady Pennyfor? Pain, Painfor, yeah. Painfor and uh, the and Richard. You know what I mean? It was very, <laughs> very overacted um, and a bit confusing. I don't know if on paper this was quite a good story. I don't think I've ever read the Target novel because that's what I try and do with with Classic Who is mm. judge it kind of more on the Target novel uh, to realise if the story is actually any good. But I don't think Silver Nemesis is, is it really? No, I don't think so. My one of my early memories of this was when it kicks off with the Nazis. I thought, you can't show Nazis in Doctor Who. I mean, this is back in 87. I'm 12 years old. I've got particular views about what Doctor Who is and isn't. And yeah. I was thinking, you, you can't have Nazis in Doctor Who. This is bizarre. This is like nothing I ever thought I'd see. Yeah. Well, no, it was... I mean, obviously, we, you know, the... the Genesis of the Daleks, we had Nazis, but they were never named Nazis. And obviously, a lot of the the adversaries that do, the Doctor faces uh, that, from that sort of ilk, because of you know the writers that wrote them, that was what would have affected their lives. If you see what I mean. Mm. But these are actual Nazis, which is which is without a doubt a first, isn't it? Like you're saying, Doctor Who, and a bit like, oh my God, actual Nazis on television in Britain? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> But it's uh, yeah. But the, the guys in the book, when I'm reading through, there's a little section on the uh, the silver, well, the Nemesis statue's impact on history. So in 18, because uh, obviously it goes in the cycles, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. This the the sort of statue, whatever, going round in its cycles. So in 1813, Pride and Prejudice is published. In 1838, Queen Victoria is crowned. In 1863, the Civil uh, the American Civil War in 1888, Jack the Ripper. 1913, the Evil World War One. Uh, that's a bit tenuous, but you reckon the Doctor just winged that one because um, <laughs> it's, it's he's saying you know all these events that are happening. Uh, in 1938, Hitler is uh, annexes Austria. Uh, 1963, Kennedy is assassinated. 1980, a group of German terrorists destroy and ultimately uh, and ultimately force with. Uh, the temporary two-day closure of Windsor Safari Park. And then in uh, 2013, an adventure in space and time doesn't get a UK blue release. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, it goes through the uh, little timeline of that. And it doesn't get... Did, did it not get a UK blue? Is that an actual true fact? It's not a true fact, is it? Because it was well written before, wasn't it? I'd say so. That's just, that's just them surmising. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a very complicated plot, isn't it? If there is a plot. I'm not sure if there is a plot. Is there a plot? I don't know. What do you reckon, Rob? <laughs> if, they... if you were if if you were to surmise what was going on, because you've got three fractions, you've got Sidemen doing yes. summit, you've got Lady Pennyfoot doing summit, and then you've got Nazis doing summit, and the Doctor's in the middle of all this summit <laughs> to this statue of silver that can destroy the world. And it's and it's a short story. It's a three episode. It is, but I think it, it couldn't have been four. It wouldn't it wouldn't have made any difference. This mm. being four parts, it wouldn't have breathed any more life into it whatsoever. It just got worse, I reckon. I mean, I, I like it because it's, it's a bit of fun and it was a 25th story. Now, I remember it with a, a fond heart as a child, but it's not one that I would care to go back and watch out of choice unless I was reviewing it or something. Do you know what I mean? For, for a podcast or whatever. I do, I do. I, I enjoy this section in um, the Weltschmerz book where it talks about Lady Painfort and the statue. Uh, this is page 124, if you want to read along at home. 
and it uh, says, So Lady Painfort decides it'll be a statue holding a bow and arrow, but who decides which two pieces are removable? It's just as possible that someone could have made off with the statue's knickers and eyeballs. <laughs> that would have put a different spin on Deflora's display case, a big silver pair of Elizabethan fanny wrappers sitting on his desk. <laughs> <laughs> it's ace. I love this book. It's brilliant. It does it in a really nice way, doesn't it? It, it although it's decking the mic, it does it in a really, very loving way. I think, and it does put some reality and context into what could have could have happened, or what should have happened, or what was happening. If you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Silver Nemesis. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Just talking of the book, I, I flicked over the page, and it mentions the Brigadier's Day Out. Of course, Nicholas Courtney's one of the uh, the people visiting the castle as, as one of the tourists and he, he's he not me- meant to be the brigadier he's just filling in a scene you know i yeah. think jnt just got a whole bunch of people he knew probably who had actors equity cards i imagine who could be on on camera <laughs> uh just to be in the background of a scene but they make up this whole sort of back backstory about the brigadier being there <laughs> yeah it's amazing what he's doing there and why he's doing it yeah, but yeah, it's a, it's a sweet, it's a sweet little thing. I don't know if he, I think he might have got other people in, just sort of, not just for because he had an equity card, but because it was the bigger deal and whatever, just to be extra in the background to celebrate the twenty fifth. But uh, yeah, it's a beautiful little backstory as to what he was doing there. Yeah. So Silver Nemesis, I I think far too much going. Could we have taken the Nazis out perhaps and just had Lady Painfort versus the Cybermen? I think we could have just had the Cybermen, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> on the hunt for, you know, the, just the, themselves. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that would have been... You probably would have got a lot more out of the plot. Um, but yeah, I think Nazis were just in there to... Like, we both were shocked. And I think that's, that's probably what they were there for. Do you know what I mean? Because it could have been any sort of organised, you know, org- enemy organisation kind of thing, so... Yeah, some very Remembrance of the Daleks type scenes too. I'm thinking particularly of Ace being, you know, surrounded by Cybermen and having her little slingshot and so on. It, it reminds me of being cornered by the Dalek and having the bazooka. And, and yet these two stories would have been written concurrently and they would would have no idea what the other writer was doing. And yet there are elements of them that are, are so similar. No, they are. I mean, that's that's one thing it's criticised for as well is that it is very, 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 very very similar uh, to Remembrance of the Daleks and just a poor, really poor, poor version of that, which is a shame for the Cybermen because the Cybermen are brilliant and a very scary idea, but they're never uh, given justice, I think, in an adventure, whereas the Daleks are always given, you know, pretty much a good story or plot. And that, that applies right through pretty much most of Doctor Who and I include New Who in that. The Cybermen should be a lot better. So, like, Earthshock, I could name probably as the team of the Cybermen, maybe. Mm-hmm. is good Cybermen adventures where they've been used to their potential. Um, it's a shame we didn't get a bit of a spare parts in the new series. Um, it was a bit of a rubbish spare parts, wasn't it, really, I thought. I didn't even recognise it as, as a spare part sort of uh, homage or using that as, as a basis because it just didn't seem like that. When someone else pointed it out to me, I was like, oh, really? Oh, I didn't get that. <laughs> it's a shame it wasn't. I think, but I'd like to. I'd like to see the Cybermen taken seriously again. I might start a campaign, mm. uh, <laughs> but it'd be nice to see them being used to what they can be used for, which is a very, very scary idea. Yeah, look, I, I love the Cybermen myself. I think eighty Cybermen look probably the best. They they look, I think, far too, and they act far too robotic now in the new series. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you can tell us like there was a human there kind of thing with the eighty Cybermen, and the voices are ace. I love the eighties 
David Banks do it. Is it David Banks? He's called it is, the dude. Yeah, the cyber didn't you? Yeah. yeah, his voice is class as Cyberman. I think they should take it back to that deep, quite scary voice. He got quite carried away with the role too in the eighties, as I recall. Eventually, he wrote that Virgin book where he wrote a whole backstory for Cyberman <laughs> that I don't think got... is canon at all. But he just no, made no. it up. But he did get very involved, involved, and it was it's pretty awesome, like. So kind of a not a thumbs up, but not a thumbs down for Silver Nemesis, I'd say. Uh, but the guys go quite easy in it, I think, in the book. I think I think they do. I think they do. It's interesting, though, that you say not a thumbs up, not a thumbs down, yet it's in your top six. Is there something about it that made you pick it? Yeah, because, like I say, it's the 25th, and it was very... I loved it as a kid. I love the fact he's got Courtney Pine in for no reason. He's, he's, a, he's a brilliant brilliant jazz sax player. Um, and I love that little scene when they're just chilling out. You never see that very much, do you, in Doctor Who? Just no. the Doctor and his companion chilling out and sort of a cup of tea listening to some jazz. And then obviously jumping in the river and all that, it's class. Well, you say for no reason, but we've come to learn that Andrew Cartmell loves his jazz, loves his vinyl records. Do you think maybe he just got him in because he wanted to have a, a, a little private gig, maybe? It was complete self-indulgence, but you've got to do them things, haven't you? You know what I mean? I think I think Courtney Pine was up for it as well. I think he was a bit of a Doctor Who fan from what I can gather. Could be true, could not be true. Um, but I can't... I mean, obviously he's going to sell some records off the back of it as well, isn't he? So. Yeah, yeah. I do remember that, that little tune he's playing became a real earworm for me around the time too. It, it, like it was just so repetitive, it just got into my head. But, you know... Yeah. That's well, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't Baker Street, that's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we are at unbelievably the halfway point of this segment and i think we'll take a break and we'll be back later on in the show Welcome to uh, this edition of the Letter Lords uh, with me, Bob Fleming from the Prog to Who podcast. And me, Jim Cameron from the Crinoid podcast. You may be a bit sick of my voice by now because I'm on this episode quite a bit, by the way, of the Doctor <laughs> Who show. Um, hopefully not. Who could ever be sick of your voice? <laughs> the letters the letters will uh, prevail and tell me that, I'm sure. And this <laughs> one's a bit different, Jim, isn't it? We're back to Pick of the Penguin. It's not Gallifrey, uh, not Gallifrey news anymore, is it? Yeah, this is all to do with this This being the 500th edition of Doctor Who mm-hmm. magazine in all its formats. Uh, Pick, I guess Pick the Penguin was an older, what they used to call the letters page back in Sunday, what the Frobisher, Colin Baker comic strip days, is it? It is, yeah. That's where it stems from, Pick of the Penguin. It's quite cool. It was a bit different to see that rather than sort of Gallifrey Guardian. So, yeah, it's. Uh, mm. I, I've really, really enjoyed 500. I don't know about you. Brilliant. Yeah, really, really good. Full of excellent stuff. And you got loads with it as well, which was brilliant. I mean, like, literally, it usually just comes slips through my door, no problem, and Postman puts it through like he does my letters. And this this month, I had to sign for it and everything. It was like <laughs> some sort of royal sort of thing being delivered at my door. You know, you got the, <laughs> the massive magazine, the, the, all the, the, the magazine with all the covers in, the stickers. It was really like, wow, this is bloody brilliant. Um, yeah. And obviously, a lot of the Pick of the Penguin or Gallifrey Guardian uh, or letters, uh, just obviously going on about the 500, and rightly so, because it's a massive mm. testament to anything to reach 500, um, let alone a magazine. 
I mean, magazines, they're like record players, aren't they, nowadays? It's, like, <laughs> it's not on the internet. So it's, uh, it's good work, Doctor Who magazine. Well done. Yeah, and you think it's of a minority interest. That's an incredible achievement, isn't it? It's still going. It's still going strong, and there's a very good reason why. I mean, I know I've touched it briefly before, and I will briefly touch it now. I stopped buying Doctor Who magazine until obviously we started doing this again. I'm so pleased I'm back on board because there's loads of stuff, not just in this one. I mean, there's, this is jam packed with awesome stuff, but you know, in, in general, there's a lot. There's, it's really up to its game as Doctor Who magazine. So if you're not subscribing, they do little deals and that in, in the in the magazine. Buy one, subscribe using that method and you'll save yourself loads of money and you'll have a fantastic magazine. Mm. So, Jim, I just touched on there. I've not bought it for a while, Doctor Who magazine. Uh, what's your sort of uh, thoughts now we're at the 500 of Doctor Who magazine? Well, I've had uh, you know, slightly uh, checkered history with it. The first issue I ever got was a Doctor Who monthly when it changed oh. from uh, the weekly to monthly. It was issue number 50, which is a, a strange round number to to end up on. Um, I started ordering it from the newsagent. You know, I was living at home back then, mm. but uh, I, I started ordering it from the newsagent. The first one to arrive was number 50. Uh, Tom Baker on the front, I seem to remember, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm not quite sure why I hadn't done that earlier. I think I'd seen a couple of, of the Doctor Who comics, and uh, perhaps I wasn't that impressed with them or something. I don't know why, really, but I, I kind of got round to it by number 50. And then a week or so later, I was uh, visiting some relatives with my family in um, the sleepy Suffolk town of Beckles. Oh, Beckles, eh? Lovely. Beckles, yes. And I went into the local news agent there and found issue number 49. Oh. So uh, that was a bit of a find as well. Uh, I was really pleased to find that. And I always had a, a faint but completely illogical hope that if I ever went into other rural news agents, I might find even older issues just <laughs> lying about unbought. Was he wearing rural news agents trying to locate magazines? No, not really. Oh. Not, only if I was passing, you know. Jim Cameron. Only if, I was, only if I was going in anyway. I didn't. Uh, I didn't plan. Uh, <laughs> I didn't quarter the country and go around uh, oh, that's systematically that's looking for. <laughs> That could have sped off into so many things because the thing about rural sort of news agents, they do like a good pasty or a unique <laughs> bag of crisps or something like that. You could have then journalised this, Jim. It could have been a travel journey of a young man yeah. looking looking for pies and crisps and Doctor Who magazine and then previous the, issues. The top shelf magazines as well, perhaps. <laughs> My weaker moments. Of course, of course, back then. That's how we had to get our access. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a nice little story, Jim. I like that. So how about you? You obviously stopped for a while at some point. I stopped for a long time. I used to buy the weekly when I was a really young man. And I remember there's one that's really, there's a few that are in my, in my head, the covers and also the back covers. But the main one was uh, Sylvester McCoy when he was sort of out of costume kind of thing in front of the TARDIS. I think he must have just been introduced to the Doctor. And I could be wrong in the timeline, but that was the cover. And I think it was the introduction to Sylvester McCoy because this was going, if I'm right in saying, back in the, the sort of mid-80s, wasn't it? Or am I completely wrong, Jim? I don't know. Oh, yeah, it would have been, yeah. Yeah, good. Because I would have sounded like an idiot then, which I don't often do, apparently. No, um, you never do, Bob. <laughs> never. So I remember the, the cover of McCoy obviously being introduced as the uh, as the Doctor. On the back cover, there was the... And it's it, it scarred in my mind for years. For some reason, it had the Colin Baker, two Doctors. You know, when he's hanging from the, uh, the wiring and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. 
that was in there. But I, I, I bought it, or, or my parents bought it for me because it was Doctor Who, and I, I, I can't remember never not loving Doctor Who as I've said many times before. Uh, so I used to collect the little bits and pieces. And then I, I used to subscribe to it. So I used to got my local newsagents, Jim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I used to get it every every time it came out. And I've always, never I've never been full on with it. I've not done it every time. But, I, you know, I've been through fits and starts from it. And then I think it got, I think it must have been when it got back into the new series and it went very, and we've touched on it before, is the, it's very, you know, the BBC looking through it and going, hmm, you can't do that, you can do that kind of thing. And it got a bit boring. Uh, and also, I think with the internet as well, you find out stuff long before the magazine comes out. Yeah. You know, so it's not newsworthy, whereas before, or over the years before all that, it was the Oracle, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it was the only source of news, really, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And now it's now it's not news. They've done a brilliant spin on it where they've given you sort of like, you know, stories where you've got, interviews with some awesome people and learning a different bit about the Paul McGann movie, for example, or looking at Target novels and this one, you're looking at Mark Gatiss and, and Clayton Hickman and um, Gareth Roberts trying to bring back Doctor Who and it's stuff mm. like that you would never or never find out online because it's not big news. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? You have to really go looking for that stuff. But the big news is not there anymore, but they, they've moved on so well. And when you when in the 500, the sort of list of history of the, of the magazines, now they've sort of moved on to editor to editor and all that kind of stuff. It's really fascinating because they've had to move with the times or not move with the times, and when they've not moved with the times, it's been detrimental. And but to get to five hundred for anything mm. is stunning, I think. And yeah, so my mind's a bit checkered, and I'm so happy to be back on board and accidentally mm. have got the five hundred mm. because now if they continue with this quality, you know, production every month, it's fantastic. But yeah, I used to have weeklies. Well, I had a big uh, period where I stopped getting it. Once I left home, of course, you know, uh, stopped the news agent sending it over, mm. and I was kind of losing interest. Um, you know, it was st- I'm ashamed to say, uh, in front of you, Bob, I was losing interest during the McCoy era. Well, actually, the, the uh, yeah. trial of a time old season. I was, you know, I thought, oh, right, that's it for me, really. But I used to ca- mm. catch your odd episode here and there, and so I stopped getting the magazine. And I, I got it. Um, well, it was six and a half years ago, we started the Crinoid podcast. So I probably started getting it again about five years ago, maybe. Just because yeah. I thought, well, I better, I better start getting this again if I'm going to be, <laughs> you know, if people are prepared to listen to me talking about top two, I better make sure I'm up, you know, up with the time sort of thing. So I started getting it again. And, um, you know, there's some issues where I must admit, I hardly read any of it, but some, you know, will be cover to cover. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I think, well, I think I think I've just been really lucky on the last. We've, this is our sixth episode, isn't it? So I've got six magazines, if you like. Yeah. So and they've all been, you know, absolute corkers. So I've definitely been very lucky to probably be entering the world of Doctor Who magazine again now. Obviously, the build, building up to five hundred, they're going to be like, yeah, we've got to do some good, and they have. Mm. So so well done, chaps and chapesses. Yes, we shall raise a glass to a Doctor Who magazine. Always. Mm. Also, actually, I just want to touch on something that, I, that when you were talking then, Jim, and you said you went off the Colin Baker era, quite rightly, which <laughs> then turned you off Sylvester McCoy. Because Craig and Mark say a similar thing on our podcast, but obviously I was, I'm was i a bit younger than you guys. Not that I like to mention it. No, not much. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. It, I love, I'm hoping I'm going to say this correctly, as in I love the fact that you guys have come back in later life, and really embraced the Sylvester McCoy era of Doctor Who. Yeah, most of it. 
good that'll do for me. Uh, <laughs> and I think people are going to be sick of hearing me witching about uh, Sylvester McCoy during this podcast. So I think we shall move on, Jim. Yes, let's move on there. Shall we uh, read out the, probably the only letter we're going to read out in this? Yeah. Because as we say, most of it is pretty gushy stuff about uh, the magazine, and quite rightly so. Yeah, damn right. But uh, Jennifer Sheldon from Leicester has written in. She said it was great to see the introduction of Bill as the new companion. It brightened up an otherwise dull half of football with a <laughs> thrilling introduction and a Dalek for good luck. And Bill is a great choice of name, alluding to Who legends Hartnell and Russell. Yeah. Of course, two of the original four occupants of the TARDIS. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that's got something to do with it. I think Steve Moffat just came up with a name from somewhere. I think he knows someone called Belinda who shortens her name to Bill. Um, yeah. And that was sort of buzzing around his head. And then he, and he came up with it. But yeah, it's one of those names. It's kind of might be a side allusion to Billy Piper as well. Well, I think with Moffat, it genuinely is. He just thought of it. I think if RTD had done it, he'd have thought it out. You know, like uh, Sydney and Verity. When he did the, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, he, he put that in that... Um, human yeah, nature. Human nature, yeah, yeah. family of blood. I think Steve Moffat generally just goes, oh, I'll call her Bill. Because <laughs> I can't call her Steve. Steve's a bit rubbish. I don't like being called Steve. <laughs> uh, when he goes to the interview, it's quite funny. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I thought it was a brilliant way to introduce a character. Doing it in the football. You what? Doctor Who in the football? <laughs> Do you know there was a lot of um, speculation? I'm a big fan of um, Frank Skinner. I think he's extremely yeah, he's funny. Great. And uh, obviously we know him to be a big Doctor Who fan who got, mm. a, got a part as Perkins in uh, uh, Mummy and the was, Express. It was, was very good. Yeah, he was good. Well, there was a, some thinking from certain quarters, most notably the excellent Absolute Radio Saturday Breakfast show that uh, he does. He's got a team with him on that and it's well, mm. worth, well worth listening to anyone who has access to Absolute Radio. But um, he was absent from that uh, episode of that that was going out on the day of the announcement. And, uh, the, you know, the, his team that were left there without him were thinking, well, I wonder if, you know, it's being introduced at ah, football. Frank Skinner, of course, Skinner. Inex- inextricably linked with football because of the Euro 96 song and all the rest of it. And ah. um, so they were, you know, <laughs> they were wondering, well, he's not available for the breakfast show today. There's a big announcement of a new companion in the middle of a football match, and they all wonder whether it's going to be him. Per- Perkins yeah. surprising his role as a Doctor well, Companion. Would you rather Frank Skinner be cast or Matt Lucas, who has been cast, by the way, uh, as the full-time companion or second companion? Uh, definitely uh, Frank Skinner. Yeah, well, I, I love Perkins, and I thought he worked really well with, with Capaldi's character as well. What I loved about the character in my head that Frank Skinner played was, I think it was just the Doctor's imagination, his imaginary friend. Because <laughs> if you look at that episode, he doesn't actually talk to anyone, Frank Skinner's character, no one, apart from the Doctor. Well, and no, I, and, Yeah, he says things to the crowd occasionally, but I don't think anyone ever responds no, to No, no yeah. one ever does. Because we, we did this on Prog 2 and I was like, really? And that's when we went back to watch it. He genuinely doesn't. He does try and talk to people, but no one responds or does anything. It might be a bit crazy to do as a full series, but imagine the Doctor's imaginary friend, Frank Skinner, <laughs> throughout that whole thing. It would well, obviously, yeah, we're thinking about it, it wouldn't work with the dynamic of another assistant, would it? But I loved them two together. I thought they were ace. Mm. And I would prefer them to Matt Lucas, although I'm going to go in open-minded with Matt Lucas because, uh, I mean, that's been a quite a big announcement, hasn't it, really? But one that's really quick, we're about to film, we've kept it quiet, Matt Lucas is going to go full-time in the TARDIS. 
Well, we don't know for how long. He's, he will look. Yeah, he'll be in it for more than the opening episode of, of that. Well, series. no, it's been a B. It's been a B full time companion throughout the series. Well, I don't think anyone's actually said he'd be the the whole series, have they? Mm, yeah, kind of came across that way. He'll join full time on the TARDIS. Mm, okay. Well, yeah, it remains to be seen. I mean, we discussed it, didn't we, on the latest uh, edition of Prog to Who, but which you very kindly invited me on to. Yeah, sorry, I mean, about, so, sorry about that, Jim. <laughs> yeah, well, excellent fun as always. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not one of my favourite stories that he appeared in, and, you know, he didn't make much of an impression on me, but he's a, a very interesting and talented bloke. Oh, very much so, yeah, definitely. Um, plus, he's said, hasn't he, that um, his character will be more textured than it was in that um, Christmas session. Well, it'd have to be, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, no, of course it was. Just as Donna Noble or Catherine Tate toned it down a lot and mm. became a proper actress, if you like. Because, I mean, the the Christmas special she did, the, the the Runaway Bride, it was good. I really enjoyed it. But she was obviously over at Top Catherine Tate. It was Christmas. When she came back as Donna Noble, now I know she's my mic with a lot of three fans. She's like my favourite assistant from the new series. Which is great. She's fantastic. So, I mean, like Matt Lucas was a bit, bit bland. He was neither here nor there. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Whereas we know from his previous works, Little Britain, genius. And just him as a, as a bloke, he's a very clever and very talented man, like you say. Mm. In Moffat we trust, as I always say. Um, <laughs> and I think it'll be a good dynamic. You know, you've got Capaldi as well. I mean, if you've got an actor of Capaldi's stature with anyone, mm. given good scripts, he brings people up their game anyway. You know, yeah, so- I think he does. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about Bill then, because obviously she's yes. perhaps more of a key figure than, than Matt Lucas's character, but we don't, don't know really. But we know a little bit more than we did the last time we spoke on The Letter Lords. Mm. Um, she won't be from the 1980s. She's just sort of, um, you know, she obviously likes that sort of retro style. Um, I, I think that's... It's, got, it's, got, it's called fashion, Jim. Fashion? Well, <laughs> well I've, I've, what I've heard that's what the youngsters do. do. <laughs> <laughs> I have no track with it myself. We wouldn't have a clue, and I love that Moffat said that when he said about this 80s thing. He yeah. said, no, no, she just came in wearing clothes that young people do because she's fashionable, so we let her just wear them because we don't have a clue because we're all men. <laughs> they're all in their tweeds. Yeah. I can tell. But um, I think that's fine. I, th- I kind of thought if she was going to be from the 80s, her accent is actually a very modern London accent, isn't it? Yeah, very much so, yeah. yeah. It, people didn't talk in that specific accent in the 1980s. So, you know, a, a very minor point, but that's the kind of thing that <laughs> yeah, that, w- that winds me up being a pathetic, uh, pedantic <laughs> moron. Uh. But so that's fine. Yeah, another, another interesting thing, and we're, I think we're going to probably spend the rest of this letter lords talking about stuff that came up in the Stephen Moffat interview in the uh, 500th edition. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that came up was that the post Clara companion was always going to be non-white. Yeah. Which is an interesting decision, and Moffat describes why they went for that. And I think he's right. He says that uh, you like to leave this kind of stuff to sort of acting market forces. But mm. that doesn't always work, you know, for you know, opportunity or availability and all that kind of stuff. So sometimes you kind of have to give that sort of process a nudge. So they they only interviewed non-white actresses for this companion, mm. which is fine. You know, it gives you the diversity that, that doesn't necessarily arise on its own. No, it doesn't. And whatever way they're doing it, whatever way they're casting, you know, totally fine by me. Bill looks brilliant and I can't wait. And I think it needs, you know, like like Star Trek has and always has had, multi-culture. 
mm. Doctor Who needs that as well because he's traveling the universe. And obviously we've got the aliens, but yeah, you do need you know people from all races and creeds and colors represented in a show like Doctor Who, mm. as you had in Star Trek and continue to have in Star Trek. Plus, on top of that, you've got the aliens as well, yeah. which I know is a bit of a it's, it's difficult because it's more mythical and fanciful, if you like. Oh, aliens, you know, don't exist apparently. What? Uh, no, exactly. Who told you that? You know, but people from different colours and backgrounds and, and races do. Mm. And it, you need them in Doctor Who, without a doubt. Without a doubt, you need them in Doctor Who. Because that's what the show's about. And good on them for doing that. Because it, it stops them having to mess about for ages. Because I'm pretty sure Bill would have been the best actress for the job. Mm. I think that's what they were looking for. Someone yeah. like Bill. Not, I don't mean the colour of his skin. I mean someone like Bill. You know, or Pearl McCartney, you know, that sort of actress kind of thing. And mm. good on him. Whatever way they want to do it, they can do it because they're going to give us good casting, I think, pretty much all the time. Yeah, yeah, the casting is normally pretty spot on, isn't it? Yeah. So, we would, yeah, we're kind of wondering whether it's Stephen Moffat's final series is going to be a more comedic one because she's obviously very comedic in that um, sort of audition piece, which it turns out that's what it was. Mm. They, it was one of the audition pieces that uh, the auditioned uh, girls had to read, and um, he thought that'd be worth making up into a little mini episode to announce her. That is slightly contrary to what um, was on the BBC website, as I think I mentioned last time, which said mm. this would appear in a future episode. Moffat has say, said that that wasn't necessarily his intention, but he, he said he's he's so kind of only retentive about that sort of stuff that he would he will they'll probably have to reshoot it because it'll have to fit into an episode that hasn't been shot yet yeah um, of course, yeah. but he might use that and he's definitely going to use the other two audition yeah, the pieces same. that they had I think one of them is her entering the TARDIS I can't remember what you said the third one was but he's definitely going to use those mm. so um, nothing is going to waste it seems <laughs> indeed but yeah more for the bill I can't wait for her Hmm. But um, yeah, I'm, she's, I'm sure she's capable of of serious stuff, and I'm sure Matt Lucas is capable of serious oh, stuff. But... Gotcha. You'll find that most comedic uh, sketch actors or character actors are the best actors anyway. Yeah. Patrick Trout was quite good, wasn't he? John mm. Pertwee was all right, wasn't he? <laughs> and these were <laughs> comedy sort of character actors, so we'll be fine, Jim. We'll be fine. I'm, I just can't wait. Well, I can't. I can't wait. I'm, I'm interested to see what's going to happen. A lot of actors say that it's harder to act comedy than anything else because you have to have the right timing and, and stuff that you don't necessarily have to have for the, for the straight roles. So exactly, and tone as well. There's a lot of time. Mm. It's tight. The two T's: timing and tone. Yes, indeedy. But one of the other things that was revealed in the Stephen Moffat interview was that they were thinking of casting a non-white doctor, a male one on this occasion, and that um, he actually offered the role to somebody, and for whatever reason. They didn't take it up. Mm. So um, what do you feel about a non-white doctor? Um, absolutely. Well, I, when I thought it was going to be Patterson Joseph, and uh, I was really quite excited about that because I think he's a phenomenal actor. I don't think, the thing is with Doctor Who, as I was touching on with a companion, I don't look at colour. I'm not bothered. You know mm. what I mean? It's It just doesn't interest me. Sexuality does, as in if they're male or female. Well, we might come on to that We might touch in, that later. Yeah. But but no, I'd I embrace any any as long as they're a good actor, I couldn't care less. Actor, that's mm. male. Um, yeah, I, well, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely fine with it, with a non-white doctor. Which is which is silly, aren't we talking? You know, like it's the fact that it's brought up. I know. Well, exactly, but you know, it hasn't happened before, so 
I guess we need to address it. But um, yeah. yeah, absolutely fine. I mean, it might be interesting when the Doctor goes to past times on Earth, and it, yes. it might be a, it might be a chance or an opportunity for them to address the issue then, like they did with with Martha's character, Martha, in, yeah, in human nature. Uh, other than that, I don't think he's even worthy of mention. You know, they should just just write him like everybody else, and, and the reaction should be the same as everyone else. The, it's only pastimes in in Britain that would have, Britain or the world that would have any relevance, really. No, you're quite right, and it, like I say, in modern world, we shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be an issue. We shouldn't probably be talking about it, but you know, we, obviously, we can. That's what we're here to do. But because it's be, it'll be the first actor in, you know. 13 actors or whatever that's played Doctor Who. Mm. You know, it's, it is a thing to discuss. But, I, I, yeah, as long as the actor's good, I, I don't care. Well, there's a couple of um, people... I mean, I personally actually don't particularly rate Patterson Joseph. I, I don't find him very convincing. The, the only thing I liked him in, really, was that remake of Survivors, uh, yeah, where, he, was where good, he played yeah. it very straight, and I thought he was good in that. But a lot of the time, I don't find him very convincing. Adrian Lester, on the other hand, I think would be absolutely superb. Mm. Do you remember him from Hustle and various other things? Yeah, yeah. No, no, he's class. Yeah, he'd be, he'd be a great choice. And a, a recent one popped up. Uh, do you watch Penny Dreadful? I don't. Sky Atlantic. There's a character they've got in to play Dr. Jekyll. Uh, right. It's kind of Victorian melodrama featuring lots of sort of fictional Victorian characters. Yeah. You know, there's a werewolf and Dracula and Frankenstein and various other people in it. Cool. Um, there's an actor called Shazad Latif. Mm-hmm. who is playing Dr. Jekyll. And um, he's only been in two or three episodes so far, but he made an immediate impression on me. I, I think he'd be an excellent doctor. I, I uh, haven't worked out with his sort of Middle Eastern or uh, sort of Indian background, but he but he has that kind of look. But he He's brilliant. And uh, it'd be quite quite an interesting take on the doctor. Yeah. So no. if anyone has a chance to watch Penny Dreadful or is watching it already, they'll know who I mean. There we go. So that's, that's that. So... What about a dwarf? What about what about Tyrion Lannister? Honestly, like you know, we're well, going to come. Not? Yeah. We're going we're going to move on to the woman side of the Doctor. You know, but what about a dwarf? Mm. I think he's mint. I think he's ace. By the way, that's great for great in northeast accent. Uh, mint. That's what it means. By the way, it's not a flavour. It is a. It is a. It's great. This <laughs> is um, to our southern listeners and Jim as well. Um, but what about a dwarf? Time mm. Bandits was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Well, yeah, you all, right, you all right with a dwarf, a dwarf there, Jim? I don't see why not. I think he'd be great as Doctor Who. Peter Dinklage, I think he'd be class as Doctor Who. Anyway, yeah. we digress. You want to move on, Jim? Yes. Well, I was thinking that we ought to uh, confront the elephant no. in the do- <laughs> in the TARDIS. <laughs> Bob Fleming of this parish. Uh, How would you feel about a female Doctor? Right, I am. Um, the most liberal of people in the world. And I am definitely not sexist at all. But Doctor Who can never be a woman. And that must be one of the things that people say, I'm not racist, but but I'm genuinely not sexist. <laughs> and when I speak to my, you know, my female friends who do watch Doctor Who and do like Doctor Who, they're the ones, you know, the girls are the ones that say, or the ladies are the ones that say, Doctor Who can't be a woman. It'd just be weird. And then I get being accused of being a sexist by you know, my male friends in Doctor Who who are sort of not Doctor Who fans like yourself, like me and you, Jim, but, you know, sort of ones that just watch the show. It just doesn't work. It's like James Bond or Sherlock Holmes becoming a woman. It, it's not the character is male. Mm. I know Doctor Who's an alien, and I know that we've seen them 
see, you know, seeing the time laws change into women in Missy and obviously the person in the in the Chancellor Guard. But yeah, that's the sort of how it could happen, not not why it should happen. I, I, I genuinely, I've said, I mean, I've said it before, and maybe it's a bit blinkered of me that I would stop watching Doctor Who. That would be the day it dies for me. Like some of the classic Who fans who. The day it died was when New Who came back, which I'm definitely, definitely not one of them. I love love all Doctor Who. But that could be the day it died for me. Now, I would give it a chance. I would genuinely give it a chance. But it, it, for me, it would not work. I mean, don't be wrong. Like I say, I would watch it. And if it was proved wrong, I would literally eat my own shoes. And my <laughs> shoes are really tough and leathery. And smelly, no doubt. I'm very smelly, Jim. My feet are horrendous. <laughs> but we won't go into that. Uh, but yeah, I just I can't, I can't envisage it. If it ever did happen, I would watch. I'd, I'd give it a whirl. And if it was proved wrong, brilliant. But I very much doubt it. Okay. Well, I did a little bit of research on Twitter because I was interested to see what people actually thought about this. And this, of course, is not at all scientific. The sample size is anything but robust but um, I tried to split it into female only so just had uh, female followers on Twitter yeah. responding and then I did a male one after that um, the female only 15 people <laughs> one five people responded to this unfortunately uh, I don't know if they're all female I'll never know that but uh, I did specify that I only wanted female respondents uh, 67% said they didn't want the female doctor mm-hmm. and 33% said they did. Cool. I also put down can't decide or not bothered either way and, and no one voted for those. Mm. So that was 67% no from the, f- the 15 females who responded. With males, 44% no, 30% yes, 7% can't decide and 19% not bothered either way. Mm. So 30% were definite about it. Uh, but you could say that 66 of them weren't necessarily against it, 66%. This is 113 respondents to this one, so it's almost 100 more than than the female respondents. So neither side were particularly clamouring for one. No, and I think I think if, if they did it, it would... We touched on casting before, and obviously with Bill, you know, they went for a non-white actress pretty much, which is totally cool. We've touched on that. They'd have to do the same process with... The doctor, wouldn't they? They'd have to mm. go, right, well, we are going to go for a female. Well, why are you going for a female doctor? Equality, well, equality I get I get all that. You know, I'm not, like I say, I'm quite, a, I'm a very liberal guy. But not when it, not when it comes to my doctor. <laughs> well, I used to think, you know, if, if anyone proposed a female doctor, I used to think, why? And why do you want to do that? Mm. Um, and I thought, if you, you know, if thousands of, of female fans wanted it, then you'd think, well, yeah, okay, fair enough. My pathetic little uh, <laughs> piece of market research, notwithstanding, I actually think why not now? Really? And I'll tell you for why. Uh, we've had 13 white blokes playing the Doctor, if you count John Hurt. Yeah. I can't really see another old Doctor straight after Peter Capaldi. No. A white, younger man playing the Doctor seems a bit old hat now. Mm-hmm. Dwarf. So, dwarf, or a, a non-white male doctor, or perhaps a female doctor. Mm. I don't. I don't feel as uh, I used to feel like you did about about it, but I don't know why I don't feel that quite so much. Can I chuck a couple of possible castings at you, Bob? Go on then. 
I was thinking about Rebecca Front as mm. the Doctor because the um, oh, it just feels weird saying that. <laughs> <laughs> she's very good at serious stuff and she's very good at comedy. And I what, think what's, you need... who's Rebecca Front? What's she in? Well, um, you'll know her on Doctor Who from the uh, the leader of the military in the first episode of the Zygon story. Ah, uh, do I don't know if her? Yes, it's ringing the no, bell. She's in the thick of it as well, isn't she? And I know, yes, I yes, know yes, yes. Mostly, I, know, I, know, I know what you mean. I know, yes. I know her mostly from the, the day-to-day and... Uh, oh, okay. Was she in Brass Eye? I can't remember, but yeah. Brass Eye, yeah, Brass Eye, thick of it, all that. Yeah, she was popping in with Amanda Alucci and that. And I was on Twitter talking to uh, Matt Badham from the uh, Never Cruel podcast, which is uh, where we're subscribed to, by the way. And uh, he uh, came up with Mira Sayal as uh, a possible female Doctor. You right. her in Doctor Who terms, she was in, uh, was it Cold Blood? And whatever, the hung, Hungry Earth, Hungry Earth, Cold Blood. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So again, she's done serious that. stuff and a lot of comedic stuff. I could see her as well, and that would also play the uh, non-white card as well. You've kind of tickled me taste buds a bit first, <laughs> but... I still can't see it, Jim. But I mean, I, I'm I, I'm open to persuasion now. Before it was a Bob <laughs> Fleming putting the shutters down. If the Doctor's a woman, I'll never watch it again. To I will watch watch it, obviously, because it's Doctor and I love it. It is hard to imagine. Yeah, and it, that, I think that's probably what it is, isn't it? It's because we've, we've, you know, the only things we've seen is is that daft blooming thing I did for comic relief or whatever. <laughs> Well, it, you know, they had everyone being the Doctor, like Joanna Lumley, who always gets pitched to be the next Doctor. <laughs> but yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it does feel uncomfortable thinking about it as I am now. But um, but yeah, I'd be open to it. Again, I think if we'd had a female Doctor, I, I think, it's, again, it'd be something that probably you wouldn't want to play on the fact that she's female. And I have to say, one of the things that probably changed my mind is the departure of Moffat. Because I think I would trust Chris Chibnall a lot more in introducing a female Doctor that, okay. than Stephen Moffat because he has that sort of slightly sniggery, prurient sense of humour, doesn't he, Moffat? <laughs> I could see, yeah. you know, when I think, for instance, when um, River Song, uh, when she regenerated into the uh, Alex Kingston version, she was mm. making making jokes about her breasts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has a, a habit of making stupid jokes like that, and that would that would start the regeneration off on a very bad foot, I think. Whereas well, I, mean, I, I think uh, Chris Chibnall uh, might be a bit more sensitive with it. Well, I don't think it's that. I think it, it, from watching Broadchurch and stuff, he, he writes very strong female characters. In fact, that too. Yeah. Thinking about this now, and I can't remember the lady's blooming name that plays the the lady who works with Tennant, who's absolutely brilliant. She's also in. Uh, the eleventh hour, Coleman, isn't it? Olivia Coleman. I think yes. she'd be a brilliant doctor. In fact, I'm really, I'm really damn with that. No, God, you've changed me, Jim. God damn you. <laughs> but yeah, no, no. Someone, but but obviously he wrote that character, and she's a fantastic, very in depth character. Mm. Um, so maybe, maybe you're right. I don't know, but you've taken me from, or well, I'm, I'm going from total shutters down to yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd give it a go, and then judge from there because. They're not going to make it crap. With it's not going to be the actress. It's going to be how it, how that the sort of mythos or mythology of Doctor Who works. Do you see what I mean? And I don't know, man. But I'm a bit more open than I was before. All right, I'll give hmm. you that, Jim. I'll give you that. That's pretty good. 
Yeah, it's down to the writing and the casting. I think the casting, they'll have to be extra careful with the, the first time they do that, I think. Um, and I think they have to be careful whoever they cast as the Doctor, but I think they would have to get that one right because there gotcha. would be people against it. And you know, Well, they got it right with Missy. Let's well, be honest. Michelle I, don't, I don't agree with that. But <laughs> well, I think I think you came around more than you know. I, I was really happy with Michelle Gomez until you know the the, the last sort of series really, um, and there was only little bits that I wasn't too happy with, kind of thing. Well, I, was reverse, I, think, I think I think yeah, you reversed that, didn't you? Really, so yeah, I couldn't stand her the series eight, but uh, I thought she was slightly toned down and more interesting actually. In that Dalek two parter, yeah, uh, but yeah, series series nine, but yeah, I mean, I still don't see her as an ideal piece of casting, yeah. But please don't think I'm massive sexist or anything, people. By the way, because I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not detective in 1970s drinking scotch right now at my uh, draw. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wish I was. I don't really. That's a joke. But yeah, it's just something I really struggle with. Um, and I think you know most people would do having I 13 so. male actors playing Doctor Who. So you know, don't blame me. And <laughs> and you know, like I say, I'm, I'm a little open to it now. Mm. Well, that's something we mm. have learned this day. Good. Okay, well, I think that's us for this month, Dean. Indeed. It's been a pleasure as always, Jim. And it's, a, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. See you in July. Boom shaka. Welcome to the TARDIS Library, a place to talk comics, novels, audios, and more from the worlds of Doctor Who. The book I've been reading this week is called Written in Dead Wax, and it's the first adventure for The Vinyl Detective, which is the kind of umbrella uh, series title for um, a new crime range of novels written by Andrew Cartmel, published by Titan Books. Andrew Cartmel, if you're unaware of his work, is the author of the cracking uh, 1999, I think it was, novel called The Wise. It might have been 1998. It's a, a fantasy science fiction um, novel. Before that, he wrote um, a trilogy called Warhead, Warlock and War Child. Uh, before that, he was the script editor of Doctor Who in 87 to 89, so the Sylvester McCoy era. And um, more recently, he's working with Ben Aronovich on uh, sort of graphic novel adaptations of the Rivers of London series. And now he's he's doing his own thing, which is his own type of crime novel. And unlike Aronovich, it's not a sort of um, Aronovich or Paul Cornell, who is also a contemporary. Um, this isn't a sort of fantasy crime. This is a straightforward modern-day noir detective story written around the author's abiding loves, which are cats and vinyl. The next morning I woke to a hammering hangover and the ringing of the doorbell. I jumped out of bed, displacing a scandalised fanny, and pulling on my ratty old dressing gown, I shuffled to the front door and opened it, blinking in the daylight. A young woman was standing there. She was wearing jeans, a camel hair coat and black polo neck sweater. Her jet black hair was cut short in the manner of the silent movie star Louise Brooks. She looked at me. Her implausible, almost laughable physical perfection suggested she was a model or actress. I knew at once why she was here. I'm not the gatekeeper, I said. She brushed her hair out of her eyes. Well, that sounds rather alarming. This isn't the gatehouse. 
Just as well, since you aren't the gatekeeper. You want the Abbey, it's the large white building behind my house, but this isn't the gatehouse and I'm not the gatekeeper. Well, maybe you should be. I'm sure it's a nice job. There's probably a uniform. She gazed at me in my dressing gown. And it might involve epaulettes. I like epaulettes. In fact, I just like the word. She looked at me. Epaulettes. Her eyes were a disconcerting, clear, cornflower blue. I studied them for signs of blatant drug abuse, but could find none. To get to the Abbey, I told her, you need to go back onto the main road, drive about 50 metres and turn right. Who said I was driving? Well, how else did you get here? Perhaps a friend dropped me off. Well, you can you can walk from here. It's only two minutes, a minute and a half. The Abbey. I don't want the Abbey, she said. I want you. Despite the evidence of her clear blue eyes, I decided she must be off her rocker on something. I said, me? Really? Why? She took out a card and handed it to me. It was a cheap and rather gaudy business card, and it was very familiar, because it was one of mine. Underneath my name and address, I'd printed the words, Vinyl Detective. Just to clarify there, uh, Fanny is the name of one of the detective's two cats, Fanny and Turk. Um, And it is, yeah, so Andrew Cartmel um, loves his jazz, loves collecting vinyl, uh, and loves cats and goes on to say in the acknowledgements section of the book that um, he's kind of finally doing that thing where you just write about what you know and what you love which is kind of rummaging around looking for rare jazz records and um, adoring cats um, I can totally get on board certainly with, with the cat aspect of that um, but also there's obviously a lot of stuff about jazz um, a lot of history of uh, sort of obscure labels and there's a sort of constant background flavour of kind of 50s uh, jazz. Um, The story basically are sort of anonymous uh, hero um, and a couple of... It's sort of structured a bit like a James Bond novel in some ways. There are are two kind of um, women in the story, both of which get their kind of their time with the hero uh, but it's a very noir sort of um chandler-esque bit of a to b to c straightforward crime writing with some kind of colin dextery tricksy flourishes as well there's a couple of I, I word puzzles isn't really appropriate but it's it's that sort of thing um one of which is quite you kind of know where that's going and every time it gets trotted out you get increasingly yeah 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 get on with it get on with it um and one of them slips totally under the radar and when you uh sort of finally sort of mutter it to yourself it's one of those big penny drops oh i'm so stupid ah moments um so so the story basically uh our friend is hired as he was um uh meeting the uh one of the the main characters in the book in that bit i read there uh she hires him he undertakes um a a job which is to find a very rare recording and what happens in the book is this is is what happens next it's um you know it's a crime novel i can't tell you i can't ruin anything i'm not going to do that sorry so all i can really talk about is um how i got on with it now i'm not much of a, a sort of crime fan i like a few crime writers um but i don't like 
I like it sort of slightly intelligent and Colin Dextery, Marjorie Allingham, that kind of thing. Uh, But this um, I absolutely loved. I mean, I absolutely raced through it. The prose, first and foremost. I mean, Cartmel, I've always thought he was a far, far better writer than he probably realised, even when he was writing Doctor Who novels, uh, original Doctor Who novels, they were sort of head and shoulders above the competition, just in terms of the kind of effort, artfulness of his prose, the effortless um, quality he brings to it. Reading it, it feels so simple that there's no kind of, you know, you can't imagine he's spent hours honing every sentence it just feels sort of smooth and frictionless and utterly compelling and um and obviously that's the hardest form of writing and obviously he probably has spent far longer honing every sentence of this than you could ever imagine i don't know but his prose is absolutely amazing his storytelling is so strong and so effortlessly well structured um there are a couple of you know those sort of false ends at the end and then someone comes back or the story starts up again when you thought it was all over there's a couple of those towards the back of the book and you're thinking ah yeah just ah it's just you know enough already but no this is absolutely incredible stuff uh, and i don't you know i don't know anything about vinyl i don't know anything about jazz it doesn't matter it's not important what you get is a bloody good noir crime thriller with some sort of hugely exciting moments some real kind of oh my god i've just got to read another 50 pages uh sections um funny characters brilliant funny dialogue really effortlessly brilliant storytelling and um it's it's you know if this is book one of a series i'm absolutely gonna uh order the next i mean the next book won't be out for 12 months but i'll order it now because this has just been an, an amazingly good read So, there you go. Um, Two thumbs up for uh, Written in Dead Wax by Andrew Cartmel. Hi, I'm Kevin, and I'm back once again with more Doctor Who comics reviews. I'm going to swap things around this month and start off with a look at issue three of the current fourth Doctor miniseries from Titan. Part three of Gaze of the Medusa from writers Gordon Rennie and Emma Beebe and artist Brylan Williamson not forgetting the excellent Hi-Fi as colourists. So it looks like variant covers are here to stay on these titles. Um, so I begin with, I thought I'd take a slightly more detailed look at the four variant covers available for this issue as they're really quite different this month. First up we have the regular cover from series artist Brylan Williamson which sees a petrified stone Sarah Jane in the grips of a green scaly clawed monster. And in the background stands the Doctor, armed with a round shield. Now, it doesn't represent any scene that actually occurs in this book, but it's a nice moody shot which clearly pays tribute to the original and best Clash of the Titans movie from 1981. The one with the Ray Harryhausen animated Medusa and Laurence Olivier as Zeus not the 2010 remake with Ray Fiennes in a dodgy beard. Second up is the Photoshop cover from Will Brooks, with mad goggle-eyed Tom about to be grabbed from behind by a pair of three-fingered claws. There's some nice use of colour and overlay effects, 
but it's spoiled slightly by the obvious cutout lines around the Doctor, and the fact that he and the Claws just don't seem to be in the same shot. I've seen we all do better. Our third cover is from long-time comic artist Warren Police, who's been around since the days of the UK's Harrier comics in the late 80s, and who I've come across more recently in the pages of 2000 AD and titles from Vertigo. So we have the Doctor wandering along the dockside while a lamp-bearing Sarah Jane looks apprehensively behind her at some dodgy-looking workmen hiding in the shadows. I'm not a huge fan of Warren's art, but it's nice enough, very clean lines and all of that. Although it does look more like a panel lifted from a story than a cover image. Plus, the Doctor looks a bit like he's constipated or about to cry. I wasn't quite sure which. Finally, we come to perhaps the most interesting of the four covers, which is from Robert Hack, who has apparently done lots of Doctor Who variant cover work before for the IDW line, but who I know primarily as the artist on the excellent Chilling Adventures of Sabrina from the Archie Comics horror line. It's very much in a similar style to that comic, with scratchy line work and a washed-out brown-toned colour palette, as the Doctor's watched by a skeletal female figure, who I guess is meant to be Lady Carstairs. For me, it's one of those pieces of art where you don't like it at first, and then the more you look at it, the more you see the skill and the detail. The large brushstrokes in the background, the wrinkles on the Doctor's jacket. I could go on. I'm personally reminded of the work of Guy Davis from the wonderful Sandman Mystery Theatre series, written by Matt Wagner, which, funnily enough, Warren Police worked on as well. I really wasn't keen on Davis's work initially, but I grew to love it. And I wonder what Robert Hack could do with a real horror-themed issue of Doctor Who. Right, on to the contents of the issue itself. Last time we ended with Sarah Jane and Professor Odysseus James, and a Cyclops creature, transported to the ancient past by the strange Lamp of Kronos, leaving the Doctor and the plucky Athena in Victorian London to figure out a way to get them back. And those two plot strands move along quite briskly, on one hand, you have the Doctor tinkering around with bits of technology to get the Lamp of Kronos working again, and Athena gets a short hop in the TARDIS, all while they're fighting off Lady Carstairs as she makes a move to recover the lamp, assisted by her time-sensitive henchmen, who now have a, hidden, a nifty new name, the Scryclops. Meanwhile, back in the 5th century BC, Sarah Jane and the Prof explore the underground cave system they've been dumped in which is full of more of those petrified humans from Victorian times. And then they find the poor Scryclops that was transported with them, also turned to stone. Something else is there, slithering about in the dark. And it's not really spoiler territory to say that the Doctor manages to open a gateway to the past using the lamp, and that Sarah Jane meets a stony fate from the gaze of the monster in the depths. One had to happen in plot terms, although... Why didn't he just use the TARDIS? I guess he had to find out where in time Sarah went, and only the lamp could do that. And the other? Well, Sarah Jane's fate was telegraphed way back in issue one, and on one of the covers of this very issue. Now, the real fun to be had in this issue is the dialogue and the character interaction, which is built on the successes of the last two. In ancient times, Sarah Jane is shown to be the one in charge, and displays all the feistiness and investigative skills that we've seen in the character on television. She certainly puts Professor James in his place on more than one occasion. Speaking of the prof, 
Am I the only one who's getting a little fed up with the constant tiresome literary quotes every time he makes a new discovery? Oh, look at me. I'm so well read. It's my least favourite aspect of the storyline so far. The Doctor, meanwhile, waxes wistfully about how he's misplaced the TARDIS art gallery. Don't worry, Doc. It'll turn up again in time for the invasion of time. And there are some lovely Tom Bakerish moments when he tries, and initially fails, to get the lamp of Kronos working again. He even considers Athena as a potential companion material, although I find her a bit bland at the moment. On the art front, it's good news, because there's far fewer of the jarring photo references. One or two still creep in, but it's more subtle. There are a couple of nice unusual panels, both of which involve the Scryclops. One where we see the Doctor and Athena through its eyes, another where it's sort of targeting the fleeing player as they prepare to enter the time stream. Elsewhere, Williamson is a bit limited in what he can do with the endless cave backgrounds, so the colourist is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in those scenes. And then we come to the Medusa monster. It was probably the right decision to steer away from the classic snake-headed woman design that everybody knows. We still have the straggly tendrils for hair, malevolent eyes and a long tongue, but we also get a snake-like body with a clawed hand at the tip, some mandibles that are a little reminiscent of an insect, and four arms, of which the lower set seem able to bend at a rather unnatural angles. Maybe it's just the drawing. It's an okay design, and still quite scary looking in that final full-page cliffhanger. So, with two issues still to go in this miniseries, there's a lot of ground left to cover, and quite a few unanswered questions. How will Sarah Jane be returned to her natural form? What will the Doctor and Athena find when they step out of the chrono stream? Is the Medusa the same creature that Lady Carstairs made a deal with? And if not, where does it fit into all of this? Will the Professor do something useful? There's plenty of scope for a few more twists in this story, and it's shaping up very nicely so far. Before we end, though, I do have one final little niggle. Why put the title and credits page halfway through the issue, instead of at the start, or at the end, as they'd normally do? It's very jarring, and it takes you right out of the story. I don't know. Maybe it's just my digital copy. On to my second review, which is issue 2.5 of the 12th Doctor series. I've less to say about the covers this time, as two are simply, admittedly very nice, shots of the Doctor and Clara peering out over the sonic shades. Maybe they are another album cover homage, but if so it's not one I can easily recall. The third cover is the Photoshop, with Clara in various costumes and all the Doctors she appeared with in Gallifrey and time screens behind her. And the last, by series artist Rachel Stott, is the most impressive, with its red background bleeding into the Doctor's jacket as he reaches out a hand towards the reader, inviting them in. It's very apt considering the subject of the story within. Okay, so do you remember last month when I complained that the Sea Devil story was a little dull and predictable and didn't take advantage of the comics medium? How Titan should be doing stories too broad and too deep for the small screen, as the new adventures used to say. Well, it looks like I treat my own words, because Robbie Morrison and Rachel Stott have done just that with this comic. It starts with the Doctor directly addressing the reader, 
urging them not to read any further. This comic could destroy the world, he says. Don't turn the page. It's a literary device that's been used before on the back cover blurb of novels, and even in comic books. But it works well here because it's so unexpected coming from the Doctor. Of course we do turn the page, and are confronted by a full page image of a twisted deformed face and some kind of protoplasmic hand reaching out to us. We then cut to the room of a teenage girl who experiences the same unnatural sight from one of her own comic books just before she vanishes. And it turns out she's trapped in the pages, hands rattling the panel borders in desperation. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Clara land in central London, asked by Eunuch to investigate some strange disappearances and energy fluctuations. The readings lead them to Shaftesbury Avenue, on the doorway of the Forbidden Planet store, except in the Doctor's universe it's called Prohibited Sphere. It turns out that Clara's a bit of a comic book geek. There's some nice, if a little heavy-handed, chat about diversity in comics, and why doesn't the Doctor regenerate into a woman, before he discovers that he himself is the subject of one of the titles, the humorously named Time Surgeon. When the Doctor vanishes suddenly in the midst of a rant about the inaccuracies of his comic book portrayal, it's left to Clara to wheedle the truth out of the store employees. The comics have been eating people. They prove it by taking to her to storeroom and showing her the books where other customers are now trapped inside. And suddenly Clara works out that she has to open up her copy of Time Surgeon. And there is the Doctor, glaring up from the page and demanding that she buy this comic immediately. My life depends on it. Before she can take all this in, the male employee gets sucked into the comic book as well. And as a creature emerges, Clara sees who is responsible. It's the boneless the two-dimensional monsters from Series 8's Flatline. What follows are the two parallel stories, one with Clara and the female employee frantically trying to escape the clutches of the boneless, and the other with the Doctor inside the comic book world. And here he meets Natalie, that girl from the start of the book, and that's who his opening warning was really directed at. We get some fantastically imaginative spreads as the Doctor shatters the confines of the page a classic nine-panel grid, and the pair escape into the realm between the panels, a realm where endless comic books exist, many containing other trapped humans. Panels from the Doctor's own past adventures swirl around him as they step through the multiverse. There's even time for a Silver Surfer joke. The boneless are invading the Earth via our comic books, one at a time. It seems hopeless, as our trapped three-dimensionals are dragged closer to the home of the 2D creatures, until the Doctor realises that the disparate panels are all connected in a kind of shared universe, via the power of the reader's love for the medium, and that power can be harnessed. Through a combination of the Doctor directing all that reader telepathic energy, and Clara using the TARDIS to break the fourth wall between realities, there's some technobabble about a spatial flux. We get a literal, and with one bound they were free moment, as things return to normal and the boneless are defeated. So this is a tale about the power of comics, that could only be told through the medium of comics, and it's in the main brilliantly done. Rachel Stott's artwork is allowed to shine through her illustrations of the gap between the worlds. It, it's difficult to describe in words, but it's very visually impressive. There's some lovely stuff here and her Twelfth Doctors never look better. 
I know she's not illustrating the next storyline, but I hope she returns to the title very soon. You also can tell that Robbie Morrison believes in the endless possibilities of comics and how they bring joy to millions. The Doctor gets a great speech saying just that towards the end. If things are let down at all, it's that there's a little too much time spent with Clara running away and destroying the comic shop in the process. Whereas the Sea Devil story was overlong at four parts, this feels too short and could have been a two-part with a nice cliffhanger in the middle. Our journey through this strange new dimension is over far too quickly. I wanted the Doctor to explore more of the realms of the boneless. I reckon there were more interesting things that could be done with the structure of comic books. I think if there'd been a little bit more breathing space to let the creators and the readers' imagination run wild, we really could have seen something very, very special. Last thing to mention is the one-page cartoon from Colin Bell and Neil Slorrance. It also riffs on the nature of comic books, and it's a great creepy little read. All in all, it's a very satisfying issue, and a big step up from the first four. Let's hope they can maintain the quality. Right, that about wraps it up for this time. If you want to read more of my thoughts on Doctor Who comics, obscure movies and TV shows and strange stuff from my childhood, you can find all that and more on my blog. Just Google Ravings from the Rubber Room. There's something new at least once a month. Anyway, bye for now. Hi, I'm Matt Barber. Um, I'm still uh, from the Blue Box podcast that they continue to let me on to talk about Doctor Who. And I've been tasked again uh, to review the ongoing adventures of the Ninth Doctor from Titan Comics, uh, written by Kevin Scott, uh, with the art by Adriana Mello. This is the final instalment of a three-part story. Uh, in the first two parts, so it's centred around the Slovene and the Raxicorocophalopatorians. Um, and, and in this part, Rose and... Uh, Raxicorocophalopatorian, Slovene, have uh, gone on the run and the Doctor and Captain Jack are um, pursuing them uh, along with uh, Raxicorocophalopatorians who are opposed to them. It's really good. Again, what's interested me is the shifting style of the three episodes. So the first episode was kind of postmodern, very referenced the original series a great deal um it had lots of in jokes the second was a sort of a the doctor gets um arrested uh so there was a quite sort of it was quite enclosed um in this third part it the story sort of explodes out uh so we go to the the home world it's got a jungle setting uh there's a conspiracy story towards the end there's also it's also got sort of uh, bits of the Hunger Games in it. There are bits of again a conspiracy thriller, um, which I quite like. The uh, the allegiances between the characters are are sort of blurred and confused. The main villain from the first episode becomes more sympathetic, and also it's it's something that it picks up from um, stories like Dalek, for instance. Rose is very much the the centre of this change to the villain's character this sympathy that we feel for the villain we feel it through rose so in that way it's again very faithful to the russell t davis era but it also 
and I think this is the key to to uh, Kevin Scott's whole story. It also very much feels like he's progressed it from that first season. This, as I've said before, feels like season two of Eccleston, the season two of Eccleston that we didn't get. Um, another another result of that is is how the the Slitheen have been have been explored in this story. So there's almost like a sort of Malcolm Hulk like focus on the backstory of the Slitheen. Um, this comes, I mean, this was touched on slightly in Boomtown, but by going to the homeworld, by sort of by seeing seeing where they live, and also looking at the relationship between the different the different types of Raxicoricophalopatorian in this sector, that's what's giving this this story real depth, which I like. And actually, it feels a little like it's kind of rescued the Slitheen from. I mean, in the series, they they were taken up by the Sarah Jane Adventures, which was, I think, a sensible choice because of the design of the Slitheen and because of the comedic nature of the stories they were in in that Eccleston series. Um, but this kind of rehabilitates that, I think. This this takes them and gives them uh, an edge. It gives them... Um, I think it's the pol- the politics that he that he brings into it. The the idea of these these sort of interconnected races that look different but but are uh, have their own sort of um, their own kind of dynamics. So I liked that. The other thing that struck me about this, which I didn't talk about last time, but perhaps should have done, is the way the Slovene are drawn, the actual artwork. Um, one of the flaws of the Slovene, particularly in those first two uh, stories, World War Three, um, uh, and and uh, the other one that's uh, the title of which escapes me, um, is the design of the Slovene, the CGI Slovene, and the prosthetic Slovene never merged together. So the prosthetic Slovene was very rubbery and ineffectual. The CGI Slovene was very frightening and brutal, but they they didn't come together. Here, I think, uh, what Adriana has done very successfully is given each alien creature in her story a real personality. And that's not easy. I don't. I, I'm I'm really impressed with the way that it's done. So when uh, the the Slovene, something happens to the Slovene that I won't spoil, and that elicits um, a lot of sympathy. That that sympathy is reflected in the way that it's it's designed. I also really really like the designs of the different creatures. So there's a kind of a Almost, I know, as a reminder of uh, a bit in Beetlejuice, or perhaps even Hellraiser, but maybe Beetlejuice. This kind of grotesque, grotesque monsters that are slightly based on animals. So the Savine is obviously has that kind of Zygon baby-like appearance, this kind of fetal appearance. But there's also birds, and there's a sort of hedgehoggy creature, and that ties it in quite neatly with with the creature from love and monsters which is supposed to be supposed to be part of this this group of aliens um one thing i did feel captain jack wasn't wasn't used very strongly in in any of these stories and particularly in this episode he's kind of there to ask questions and run around i get the impression however that he's a central part of the overall arc as this story demonstrates and concludes, it's clear that this is part of a broader story. 
much as you'd expect from a Russell T Davis season. Uh, so I'd be interested to see if he becomes more used in later stories, if he becomes developed slightly, because he wasn't in this, but I'm willing to be patient with that. Um, so overall, I was really, really pleased to be asked to review this story, and I really enjoyed it. It, As I said, it it felt very much like um, like part of the Russell T. Davis depiction of Eccleston. And I think that's the key to, to any of these comics, is somehow making it a part of the era that it's based, but also somehow developing that and expanding it. And I think Kevin Scott does that very successfully. Hey there, it's Lex. I'm going to review issue 2.10 of the 11th Doctor, Doctor Who comic. And this one is called First Rule. As in the first rule, but they don't say the word the. Do we miss the word the? A little bit. Because otherwise it just sounds kind of like somebody's ruling something for the first time, which is not at all what this issue was about. It was about planning ahead and um, never let companions die. And truth be told, no one is particularly good at following this in this issue. But I don't want to give away too much. I'll just go and introduce who the crew is this issue. The writer is Rob Williams, the artist is Simon Fraser, letterer Richard Starkings, and comic crafts Jimmy Betancourt, and the colorist is Gary Caldwell, and of course there's Absalon Doc, created by Steve Moore and Steve Dillon, and uh, that's, that's it. So there are two openings to this issue, one's with Alice and one's with the Doctor, and they both feel very television-y. The title, First Rule, is the first thing said in this issue. It's Alice. It's hard to tell whether or not it's some kind of dream sequence. And this little opener is very... Well, it feels like an opener to some kind of... Like a Buffy episode, a television show, where they, they hook you in for the first, like, five minutes. So it's Alice, and it might be a dream, might not be. She's in some library... She's a librarian, in case I never mentioned that. So she's in a library putting away books and complaining about uh, the alphabetical order of things and saying how the first rule is that there's always a plan. One of the books that she puts away is black, entirely just black. And she puts it on the shelf, and as she does that, a kid just appears behind her, like an Asian kid. And we've seen this kid before talking to the war doctor, I think in issue 2.1 of this year. I don't think it really came across that he was evil in issue 2.1. Now he definitely is. So anyway, back to Alice. She puts away this black book and then the book turns into this sludge monster and it grabs her while the Asian kid is mid-harassment about how useless she is, and no wonder she got demoted, blah blah blah. Yes, she got sucked into the black book, which is really more like a big sludge puddle of blackness, and it's a little worrying, but we know she's going to be fine, because she's Alice. And yeah, so I'm going like into depth of describing these, because it's so 
obviously mimicking television. That was the first opener. The next opener is even more like television. Well, Doctor Who show television. It heavily mimics what we've seen in the show concerning the 11th Doctor. To me, uh, it's like blatant, almost plagiarism. But let's be honest, this comic is entirely based off of a television show, so whatever they do can't really be construed as plagiarism too much, I don't think. They get away with it. And hey, I'm not complaining. I, I do enjoy Doctor Who television and openings such as this, where he goes on a huge, grand monologue to himself, well, to the stars in outer space. It's not the first time he's done this. And I say it's mimicking television. Does this remind anybody of the Pandorica Stonehenge scene when he's shouting out to the stars? In this issue, um, he's talking to the then and the now, telling him to come and get me. Well, not me. The doctor. The doctor says, come and get me. That's how he ends his speech. It is a long speech with a lot of exclamation points. Lots of them. Um, and yeah, uh, it's a pretty picture. Rainbow stars in outer space. It's beautiful. It would make a great poster. And so after he does that, it's just like it's four slides of images, and each one of them is highly iconic of the 11th Doctor. After he goes on his grand monologue, um, he does this one eye open cringe. And you know the one I'm talking about, right? This also is very iconic of the 11th Doctor. Let's say, for instance, um,. The Wedding of River Song episode? River is in her astronaut suit in the lake in Utah and shooting the doctor. And the doctor is expecting that full blast to come and it never does happen. And he, it's just him doing that one eye squint, like expecting something bad to happen, that cringe. You know the one I'm talking about. It's I think it's iconic because Matt Smith's face is so odd looking and... <laughs> No one does a one-eye cringe like Matt Smith. Well, they do that in the issue, too. So, I just... Yes. More obvious television mimicking. And then the next slide. He does that thing where he talks to monsters in sweet, hushed tones. So he says, you can't find me anymore, can't you? Uh, basically, in this one next slide. And then after that, he gets all emotional, missing his companion... The two openers just felt really like television, and you might like that, so it was worth noting. You should find the issue, even though I just described the entire opening in a way that you would never need to see the issue, because I just told you everything about it, didn't I? So, moving on to the rest of the issue. Everything changes after that opening, after the two openings. The details are gone. It's like they focused all their effort into those first two openings of Alice and the Doctor. Absalon Doc comes into the picture, and maybe it's partly because he's such a crazy character and there's a lot of action after this. There's so much movement that the details of the artistry um, no longer are so important. I mean, I guess when you're moving, you're the, you can't really see people's faces anyways, right? Everything is kind of blurred, and it's like that. The pictures are blurred from now on, and I am complaining about this. I don't like it, but I can maybe understand why it's happening. 
So Simon Fraser did a wonderful job on the details in the first couple of pages of this issue and then just dropped it. He's done. Um, although, I have to say, even though he may mess up those facial features and the other pretty aesthetics, he never messes up perspectives or points of views. This, the layout of every scene is always very interesting. He's a master at setting up a scene. So at least the rest of the issue has that. So Absalom Doc and the Doctor get in a fight. And then we go back to Alice, where it's picking up from not when she got sucked into a book, but where we left her off in the last issue. Um, her stealing the Master's TARDIS. Just to give an example of Simon Fraser's skill at scene setup. The perspective given while she's in the Master's TARDIS in a time vortex is it must have required some very creative insight into dimensional bending. It's very twisted and yet makes sense and they've got Alice in like this falling position. It's cool. And then once once we see Alice in the TARDIS, this is when things really start to happen in this issue. So the same black abyss, or a sludge monster, but in this case it's more of an abyss. It's it's like a hole. Um, the same, do I call it a monster? Some kind of thing appears again. The same thing that was the opening of this issue has appeared in the Master's TARDIS. And we don't, Alice doesn't see it. It creeps up on her. We, the comic book readers notice it because it starts off at like a really tiny dot in the background and with each picture of her it gets bigger and bigger and it's just growing behind her. Little Miss Alice is talking to herself in the Master's TARDIS doing the Dorothy Wizard of Oz talking to her pet dog thing but by pet dog I mean Master's TARDIS and it's it's <laughs> the scene is so creepy. Companions always do that thing. When the doctor's not around, companions always talk to the TARDIS as if the TARDIS is going to help them out somehow. Usually it works. And they just took total advantage of that expectation and twisted it. So she's asking, like, how do I get through the time wall? How do I save the day? And, and finally, from behind her, this black hole speaks. It talks. And it says... Just click your heels together 3,000 times until they bleed. What the? Where did that come from? Things just went very dark in the world of Oz. I didn't know that this comic could be this dark. And it gets worse. I have a little personal story to add to this. But actually, before I do that, I have to tell you what happens to Alice in the next couple of seconds. So, Alice's eyes disappear. They're, they become two empty sockets of blackness. Next, everything turns green. Everything, everything turns green. And eyeless Alice is suddenly surrounded by eyes. They're these long, eyelashed green eyes that appear all over the TARDIS walls. Right on where those classic white circle things usually are. And the contrast of Alice having no eyes and eyes being everywhere is just obscenely creepy. Oh, oh, and black veins. Black veins are radiating out of her sockets, spreading across her face. And that's where I jump into my own story. 
It was late at night. I just finished reading this issue, and my sister comes into my room to say goodnight. And, uh, well, she didn't have her glasses on, and was telling me something about her life, and I was making funny faces at her. And she tried to, she knew I was doing something, but just said, I really can't see what you're doing. I just see a giant hole in your face, a big black hole, um, I guess, which is supposed to be my mouth. I'm not really sure. Um, but that, like, perked my ears after just reading this comic. And I'm like, no, don't, don't say that. But she didn't listen and kept going and started talking about my eyes and how they were just two black holes, two dark pits of blackness and it was just insane the, how she was just connecting everything I just read in the comic issue and it was like everything was coming to life and I might be possessed now by the spirit that has been transferred to me from this comic issue so beware stay away from this issue or don't stay away from this issue you decide read at your own risk is what I'm saying um but yeah, how crazy is that? She's never seen this comic. She does not read anything Doctor Who related. Yet somehow she was describing exactly what had happened in this issue. On my face. I don't know, guys. This 11th Doctor comic issue might be the last you ever hear from me. If I don't appear for the next podcast episode, you know why. So I'm going to start rounding things up. Um, for this issue. I've spared you a long rant that I originally planned to give on this review about how they're making the doctor look like a pompous, arrogant know-it-all again, um, but I've complained about that enough, so I spared you that. I want to say, though, how the storyline has been really interesting, so yes, it hasn't been amazing in all aspects of the characters' lines and all that, but the storyline in general has been very fast-paced and exciting. So the issue ends with Alice landing in the Time War, finally, and um, yeah, the creepiness factor is significantly improved. It's still there, but she has eyeballs. And not only does Alice make it to the Time War, but the first person she sees is the War Doctor. The War Doctor's back! Very, very exciting. Doctor Eight and a Half is back. The Eight and a Half Doctor. Eight and a half. <laughs> I give this issue an 8.5. Eight and a half out of 10. It was good. It was damn good. It had um, some problems that damned it in some ways. Anyways. Um, wish me good luck, please, for my next month and for my soul and um, my eyeballs. My first rule is not to die by comic book. I'm going to stick by that. All right, bye guys, and talk to you in a month. That is if I can get someone to read this comic within seven days. All right, bye! Wait, what's that black thing on my wall? Hey everyone, Rob here. If you listened to our last episode, you'll know that I recently read... Well, finish is more the correct word. The uh, 12th Doctor novel, Royal Blood, it took me some inordinate number of months to, to finish. It was it was quite horrible to read. I got very excited then because I picked up what I thought was the next novel uh, called Deep Time and I started reading it and it was brilliant. Unfortunately, about 
several chapters in, I realized that uh, it's not actually the next book in the series. So I put it down. I picked up the next book in the series, which is Gary Russell's Big Bang Generation. And that's what I'm meant to be reviewing right now. Unfortunately, I've barely made a dent in it. I'm probably about a third of the way through the book. I'm not enjoying it. It tries to be too clever. It thinks it's funnier than it is. It's written in a way that I can see might really, really gel with someone out there. I mean, that's true of most novels, right? You know, there's someone out there who would think a particular novel is good. And and in this case, I have no doubt there are people who are reading it thinking, oh, Gary, he's tremendous. But it is really not resonating with me. So can I finish it in another month's time? At this point in time, I'm thinking probably not. But we'll see. And I'm going to keep coming back each and every time to tell you how I'm going with trying to finish this damn book, because I would really like to get to deep time, having read several chapters of it and knowing it's really good and it's my kind of book and I was really enjoying it before I put it down. (sighs) What's going to happen? I don't know. Anyway, that's my update. That's where I'm at with Big Bang Generation. I'm a third of the way through. I'm not enjoying it at all. Peace. Welcome back. I'm here still with Bob. How are you, Bob? I'm very well, Rob. Very well indeed. How are you? I'm not bad at all. And we're here to kick through another three episodes from the McCoy era. And I think at the end, wrap up uh, on your your love for the era overall. What's your fourth story? The fourth story is very apt because this genuinely is the greatest show in the galaxy. As in (laughs) Doctor Who. Hey. Uh, and the uh, the guys from Bollingon Wurtzmertz, uh, or Wurtzmertz, say uh, the, the dialogue is, do you want me to do something horrible to your ears? Which I love that line. I think it's brilliant <laughs> from that little urban. Um And their synopsis is, having received some junk mail, uh, the Doctor and Ace travelled to uh, Saganax to see the legendary psychic circus. This is a scary adventure, man. Mm. Clowns. Clowns and circuses. Yeah, not Bizarre. me. <laughs> no? I don't like clowns at all. No, it's that's the it's hor- it's really scary. Uh, this this is a one I remember most as a kid, and I just remember it being scared out of my wits with the Great Show in the Galaxy. And I always remember the changing point at the end where the where the what the, what they called the dudes the the, the 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 gods of Ragnarok, the gods of Ragnarok. That's it. <laughs> and I remember it just changes in tone that at that point so much. If you see what I mean, so from this when it's when it and, it, and it's great because it works. It's how it's all revealed. Do you know what I mean? So it brings it down, which then changes the tone completely of, of the adventure, um, which is stunning. And they're quite scary and powerful, but the the whole, I don't know, it's somewhat just horribly horrible and scary about this whole thing. I was just in fear and on edge, and I never, I can't remember ever doing this with any of the story in Doctor Who, apart from this one, as a kid. It scared the bejesus out of me. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, let's kick off with a section from the book. I, there's a particular bit I like right near the start of its section, the, the section on this story. Come to Seganax and visit the Psychic Circus, declares the little robot. Those are all the directions you're getting. 
Imagine for a moment you're not a super cool Doctor Who fan with white-hot fashion sense, a full head of hair, and more notches on your bedpost than Chancellor Flavia. <laughs> you don't have two arms, two legs, a winky, or, la- or a lady winky, and some eyes. Instead, you're like a really big sausage with three heads, wings, gills, and hand hats. You breathe fire, cry acid, and poo out shellfish. You're a spooky alien, and you're unfamiliar with the world, or indeed the universe. One day, a postcard plops through the letterbox that says, Come to Madame Two Swords, the greatest wax works in the galaxy, on Earth. Just that. No other information, no postcode, country, sat-nav directions, <laughs> or even a local tube station. It's not great advertising, is it? It's no better than a drunken rumour. <laughs> it is. Yet, that's what so, happens at the start of this story. It's so true, isn't it? It's so random. And there's some bizarre characters in this. And it's quite dark and deep. I mean, that, that weird, horrible like cockney sort of guy who we did the quote from originally he's overacted and a bit bizarre isn't he yeah i can't remember what he's called in it but he was um a bit rubbish <laughs> um but it, but it's it's kind of like suits what what the you know the show's about it genuinely is a massive it's i can't even put words in it it's bizarre is what it is yeah and even watching it now with adult eyes it, i still have that that child fear in, in the back of my mind when i watch this and I'm not even that, like, I know clowns are pretty creepy and scary, and I know people suffer from big fears of clowns, but they, is, they, they, they are genuinely scary. Like, Stephen King, it's scary in this, and probably a little bit more sinister uh, for me in this. I remember at the time, I had a friend who really liked Doctor Who in high school, and you know that the spooky little hand thing that the chief clown does that sort of flick of his the little hand gesture yeah that little hand gesture we'd see each other like in the playground and do it (laughs) god you'd have freaked me out if i'd have seen you guys doing that (laughs) or one of us would walk past a classroom and see the other one inside the classroom and do it and everyone else would be thinking, what the what are these guys doing (laughs) (laughs) no idea it's just something from doctor who well i didn't realize it's um the guy that plays the 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 chief clown because when when i watched the the extras on the dvd he's i mean he's quite uh, ian Rennington. he's quite a famous actor um and he didn't you would not guess it's him in this at all until i knew and then you know obviously it all comes together kind of thing but he plays this character so brilliantly although it's quite overacted to a degree it's done within context if you see what i mean you don't at any point think god he's been a bit panto like you do with the the cockney bike rider dude do you know what i mean i think he's just sinisterly sinisterly horrible in this yes and you know uh, no no conversation about this would be complete without talking about the asbestos scare and the fact they filmed in a real circus tent as well but in addition to that just the planet itself feels really well realized even though it's just a quarry i guess of some kind yeah. It it does feel like you're on an alien planet, and and it's not in a contrived way. You know, the sky isn't painted pink like in one of those Trial of a Time Lord episodes. It's it, mm. it's it's normal looking, yet it feels very very odd. I think it's putting stuff in, like um, you know, the old lady sort of market stall trader who's selling bizarre rotten fruit and stuff like that. It puts a bit more of a, a re- I like it sounds a bit daft, a bit more of a rea- reality into it. So rather than just going across a barren landscape until they come across a villain, which is ordinarily what they were doing, you know, most quarry Doctor Who planet scenes, they're coming across something quite normal yeah. in a quarry. Does that make sense? So it's a bit more, adds a bit more reality to it. Because she's quite bizarre in her own right, and the fruit is disgusting. I remember that quite vividly as well. <laughs> Thinking, oh, God, that is rank. You know, th- this ties back to something I said when we were discussing Delta and the Bannermen and, and their 
you know, with the bus at the very start of the story, I said it has this sort of graphic novel feel to it. This feels again like a graphic novel to me, like the kind of encounter some heroes in a graphic novel might have. Mm. It's it's hard to describe, but I've, I've heard other people say it, so I don't think I'm, I'm barking when I talk about this sort of thing. It, I think Cartmel does bring this kind of comic book graphic novel sort of yeah. feel to the show that was that wasn't there in the Saywood era or probably any other era actually of the show. No, absolutely absolutely that's why it's so different as well. And obviously that's why he does do a lot of, you know, work with comic and comic books. And one of his big influences I know from when we spoke to him was was Alan Moore. Um and just, you know, generally decent sort of graphic novel writers. And and it's good that that does transpire into into you know into the into the work he did on Doctor Who. Um I mean, there's there's one bit is this the the one bit's a bit not the best is the scene with uh, when Mags, you know, when she turns into the green weird werewolf. Mm. It's it's. A, I remember being quite scared as a kid, if you know what I mean. But it wasn't thriller, <laughs> you know. It wasn't mm. Michael Jackson's thriller at the time. Which <laughs> no, uh, indeed. <laughs> so that was a bit bit naff. But it, it, all in all, it's it's pretty awesome. But yeah, as you were saying before, they actually. And this is what lends to it so brilliantly is that it actually was filmed in a circus tent. And what more? What more could you ask for? in this story and imagine if it had been properly studio bound it, you know it would have obviously been a detriment i think to the visual aesthetic of it but it definitely does pay off and add a bit more reality to the to the to the play actually setting it in where it should have been set if you see what i mean so quite lucky asbestos quite lucky possibly thank you asbestos um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's something i never thought of here <laughs> yeah when when they're uh they're walking through you got in my mind, I haven't seen it for a few years at least, and before that, maybe a decade or more. But I, I have in my mind billowing um, fabric on either side of them as they make their way through these, you know, yeah. corridors and, and so on. And and although you know how it's being made as a fan, you know, they're out in I think the BBC car park with, you know, the East Enders cast walking past. I think is one of the anecdotes who was stopping <laughs> to have a look at the filming. You, yeah. you know that's going on in the background, but it just gives it this this feel that yeah, if if they've shot in a studio, it might feel more like the Happiness Patrol or something. You know, just overlit and we're in a studio. Yeah. Look at us. Whereas it, it, it actually having a ring and all that kind of stuff, it, it brings a massive reality to it. And I think as well when you were saying about the corridors there, them being the, the sort of curtains, it adds much more of a claustrophobic feel to it as well. I think for me, yeah. I know in, in theory this look should look a bit rubbish, but it doesn't because they're sort of like using them to to you know run and chase each other down, and you just feel like it's closing. It looks like it's closing in on you, rather than just like a tight corridor that you can run down or whatever. It just adds a bit more. Oh God, very claustrophobic sort of suspense to it really so it all, although so it's, it, well, definitely it's a, a, a you know a happy accident really yeah it's sometimes limitations uh in in stories or films or whatever that that bring out you know interesting results yeah yeah the psychic the psychic circus <laughs> the, ba- the badly advertised psychic circus yeah. oh it's a good one i i do like this episode yeah it's, it's a great one man great one Okie dokie. How about number five? Well, number five is The Gift That Keeps On Giving. It is Ghost Light. Oh, um, yes. Which is the one where you can just literally find something in every time you watch it. It never gets boring, this. Um, I know people criticise it, you know, for, you know, what is going on kind of thing. But it's it's brilliant on so many levels. It's short. It's far too short for, for you know, it does need more time for, for you to sort of 
if they'd have given another episode, you would have understood it a lot better. If you see, I mean, they would have been able to put in more stuff, you know, that you see, so you would know what was going on a lot more. I know when if you read the target novelization of this, it it it, it flows a lot better. If you see, yeah. what I mean. But it is the one where you can just go back and you sort of watched it thinking, I know what's going on here now. I know what's going on. And then you watch it again and you'll sort of come up with a slightly different or a varying, you know, theory. Um, and the the bit that the the book says at the beginning, the bit of dialogue is, of course, if she was a real lady, I wouldn't be in her boudoir, which is uh, obviously very good at the time. Um, and basically it's uh, attempting to survey all organic life uh, a being a being name light and his survey team went into the irritating complication of evolution. <laughs> um, but I mean, you could and they do <laughs> poke a lot of fun at this, um, particularly as to what's going on. And also, I think particularly with the book, if there's room to, like we touched on with the Brigadier, if there's room to put a you know a backstory or something in, this is the story that you can do it with. If you see what I mean. But as a, as a piece of work, it's 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 brilliant on many many levels. Um, we did well. I mean, we just covered this recently in the podcast, um, and one of the guys who we did the podcast with, he's uh, a, a sociology teacher, uh, and he, the, the, talking about it from a so, so, so from a sort of social evolu- evolution point of view, it's amazing. And, it, and, it, and he highlighted to me how clever this story is on so many levels uh, and what it, what it covers. Um, obviously evolution and the the rate of evolution and you know the different class systems of evolution as well um and then you, you, seeing someone you know evolve basically in front of your eyes in josiah it's just taking one of the characters who's the server you know so every time he's changing and he's leaving his husks he then become monsters because it's doctor who <laughs> do you know what i mean because <laughs> it was kind of put in put across as it was a random thing that jnt did he said well we've got no monsters so stick a couple of monsters in yeah the, so the monster yeah. yeah so the husks the husks of, of josiah which is is quite bleak in itself um nimrod is the best character probably in doctor who ever i'd happily have him as, as a companion for every in doctor who he's the best um and it's just how, how you know how they've sort of how they've tried to stop evolution as well in the, from the point of view of of Gwendolyn uh, and uh, her mother, mm-hmm. and they just stopped all that dead, so they become you know subservient or servants to Josiah or to the server, if you see what I mean. And how they've taken control out of context, so you know basically she can't you know she doesn't know what's going on if you know what I mean yeah. until she comes out and then she starts evolving as well. So there's all this. I mean evolution obviously. In theory, is meant to take a lot, a lot, a lot of time, and they do it in quite obviously a quick period in Ghostlight. But it's quite brilliant how they do it and how they get each character to the point to evolve. If you see what I mean, and it's quite brilliant, particularly with Ace as well, who's who's not 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 evolving. But for example, when she dresses as a bloke, it's a stand up to say, "Well, I'm not going to do what you want," kind of thing. I'm going to sort of stop this 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 process or whatever. Exactly. So it's it's quite a, a fascinating tale. Or you could go down the angle of I don't know what it was on about, <laughs> which is which, which you can well, honestly, we you know people can happily take that opinion because it is quite a conf, you know confusing story. But it is that story if you give it some time and let it breathe and go back to it and watch it again and again and again. It's one that will just grow and you'll find something new in it every time. Which is you can't really say that about. Um, I don't think many stories in Doctor Who, but I do think if you do look back to McCoy, this is definitely one of them that you can go back and find bits in that you wouldn't have found before. That's right. A big shout-out to uh, Mr. Craig Stimson, your uh, companion on Proctor Who. 
Uh, oh, we like that companion. When, <laughs> chum, whatever you like. When when he spoke about Ghostlight on on that episode, he did bring some really interesting comments to the to the table. And I thought, I was driving along on my way to work. I thought, wow, wow, mm. and and not just wow as to what he was saying, but wow, Craig really really liked this episode. <laughs> it's I mean, it's the, like I say, it's a, it's one little challenger if you see. What I mean, now I mean, I would possibly have a completely you know completely different take on it than you know what craig would and i think that's that's the beauty of this story you, you can put your own so sort of what you know your personal sort of beliefs or whatever um you can put them to this story because it's kind of not not a blank canvas because it's quite complicated but it is something that you can adapt to yourself if you see what i mean mm. and that's brilliant writing without a doubt that is brilliant writing me and mark platt obviously did spare parts as well and it's such a shame that writers like that you know he's, he's not being given a chance for me on new who because i think he would produce something quite amazingly brilliant I do too. You know, I think there's some 80s writers, there's some guys just doing audios, there's some, some writers I think could do quite amazing stuff, but they're not being let in. I'm just looking at Welchmerz though, Bob. Yep. <laughs> oh, there, yes. There is yeah. a little section here I'd like to pull out. How many planets do you think Light surveyed before she discovered the idea that organisms change as they grow? <laughs> Perhaps that's why she's so upset at the end of the story. He's fully aware that he's going to have to go back to Iridius and Megalophon and Scaro and do them again. That attacks anyone's mind. Have you ever spent ages writing an essay in Word or creating something wonderful in Photoshop or editing some complex video footage together in an Avid suite only to accidentally delete it all or save over it with another file? The thought of starting it all over again is terrifying. Imagine Light trying to come to terms with all the different Cybermen or Silurians with tits. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it is that sort of mean, and, that, and their take on it is brilliant because there's a lot you can put into this. Um, and it is quite, that, that's the one bit that is, I think that's the one bit that confuses people quite a lot. Um, or, you know, if you don't, and it, well, it probably is confusing, if you see what I mean, the, the fact that does life evolve so quickly on Earth that, that light can't handle it? Mm. If you see what I mean, has the has the experiment gone wrong? Well, the, obviously the experiment has gone wrong, which is why they all go mental or whatever and, and blow up. But yeah, it's a, it's a weird it's a weird one the evolution thing. Like, but maybe everything on other planets it doesn't evolve as fast. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on uh, to your sixth story. What have you got for us? Well, actually, before we move on, Rob, uh, there's a little bit actually that I quite like. Um, there's a bit here, it says other things that the Doctor hates, as well as bus stations, burnt toast, um, but that you forgot to mention to Ace, they are Piles, Davros, uh, Tetrapax, <laughs> Tetraxes, Lewin Town FC, Train Spotters, Tammy Wammy <laughs> shit, his <laughs> c being, his c being cheese grated, the smell of canines lubricant, the word squeeze, acid jazz, and Timmy Malley. <laughs> Imagine if they'd have been put in place of the burnt toast and bus stations. <laughs> Anyway, All very valid things. I, <laughs> I might need some beeping, Rob. Um, and yeah. the sixth, the, the sixth story is the Curse of Fenric. It's this is this is awesome. This is the one as again as a kid. This was just scary, really yes. scary. Not as scary as Great Show in the Galaxy, but eerie, scary, dark. All of them things, like a lot of you know the the sort of Catmull era was, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and and the sort of uh, well the dialogue from from this in the book uh, is that make me make me look like Lana Turner, mm. <laughs> who I think was a, some sort of fifties film star or something possibly. Maybe even um, earlier, yeah. Maybe even earlier, yeah. Uh, and the synopsis from the guys is during the Second World War, a team of Russian, uh, Russian soldiers are sent to capture an encryption machine. They 
it and even the chess boards are all cursed by Fenric. <laughs> they are. Yeah. Everything's pretty much cursed, isn't it? Now, this is a powerful monster, isn't it, Fenric? Very powerful monster. The, these are the ones where you start getting adverse, you know, uh, villains or adversaries with godlike powers. Mm-hmm. On on who who so to have god, you know, you could only match the Doctor in essence, really, if you two have these godlike powers. And this story going back, you know, through the history of the Doctor, again, when we're finding out more things about the mystery of the Doctor and the ongoing battle he's had, not just with Fenric, but it happens in Battlefield as well, doesn't it? And a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the, the McCoy era, which is another gripping and thrilling thing, I think, as well. Um, but, yeah, the, the the villains are so godlike and how are you going to beat them, which adds to the drama and the intensity of it as well. Um, and the Hemovars, they're really awesome and disgusting and proper scary. Yeah, a good costume for a change. Fantastic costume. But, yeah, the sinister. Very sinister. And I was just going to say, uh, again, a lot of location shooting making this feel real and, you know, uh, just just wonderful to look at. It's it's stunning. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure where it was filmed, but it obviously it was filmed on some sort of ex-army base or whatever. That, again, like the tent in Great Show of the Galaxy, adds to, you know, the, the reality of it so you can get more involved. I mean, a bit as well when the, when the, the Hemovars are coming out of the sea and all that, and you've got the sort of the, the the fog coming off the sea. I mean, that's one of the that's up, that to me that's up there with like the the the, the Cybermen coming out of Saint Paul's, you know, that sort of iconic or the Daleks going through London. That's a really iconic sort of scene in Doctor Who for me. Oh, I completely agree. And and again, similar to the Nazis and Silver Nemesis, Russian soldiers. Something I never thought I would see in in Doctor Who. Not for quite the same reasons as the Nazis, but just just yeah. just something I never thought I would well, see. And here they well, are. No, unlike the Nazis, they were there for a reason, Rob, and <laughs> relevant to the plot. But yeah, it's all the sort of control, the mind control, and the Doctor's quite scary. I think. In, not in a bad way, as in you're sort of like, what's he done? Where the the mystery that's added again puts you a bit on the edge of your seat. See, so although you do feel reassured by you know Sylvester McCoy as the Doctor because he's a bit quirky, he's fun and all that kind of stuff. This whole mysterious bit that's going on behind it is just literally you're a bit on edge. So what's, mm. what we're going to find out about the Doctor next? Do you know what I mean? It's and this is this this the curse of Fenwick really puts more emphasis on that because this really does build this is the sort of final se- se- you know, series of, of Doctor Who and where they're sort of trying to take Ace because obviously a lot of these stories are Ace related yeah. and going back into her past and again which is something unusual in Classic Who was to go in depth with you know with the assistant or companion to their past and he's trying to sort of exert her demons or something throughout this for what was going to be in season 27 which we don't know officially what, what that was going to be but mm. potentially it could have been her to go on you know the purification of her to go on to become or go into training as a time lord kind of thing so there's a lot of depth in this story a lot of context and it's very very thrilling I love it I love Curse of Enrique Tays Absolutely. How did you feel? Oh, I think I know the answer to this, but I'd like to ask for the listeners. How did you feel when the extended version came out on VHS? Oh. Did you did you buy that straight away and devour it? Absolutely. Devoured it. I like that. That's very... <laughs> <laughs> this story. Yeah, no, and I, I knew because I'd, I'd watched it that much anyway. Um, this is the one, one of the ones that I've seen just countless times that I knew that the, the scenes they put in and the little bit of excitement from each of them scenes was ace it was, it was so brilliant um, to get that and a bit more footage from this episode and it does add to the to the plotting as well it does kind of although there's nothing wrong with the plotting in the edited version 
that you know the televised original televised edited version. It does add a bit more to it, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it certainly does. Now, before we go on to wrap up this era of Doctor Who uh, for you as as best we can, I thought I'd quickly rattle through the stories you didn't pick, and maybe you could give us a line or two on maybe why they didn't make the cut. Absolutely. So, if you're ready, first one, Time and the Rani. Because it's f***ing shit. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be getting my beep out for that. (laughs) I thought you got your beeper out now, Rob, so you might as well uh, make use of it. Um, It's the worst adventure in the history of Doctor Who ever. It's horrible. It's everything about what is bad about classic or 80s Who. Um, And thankfully, we only got one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> right. if, if it had done that, it would have just been a massive negative rant, and I'm not a negative guy, I quite like being positive. So, yeah, I didn't want his niggers out from the get go. Hence, no, I never you. picked it. It doesn't yeah. exist, Rob. I've never heard of that adventure before in my life. Very good. Paradise Towers. <laughs> Paradise Towers, it's a great premise. I think the difficulty with with, with the Series 24 is, is for me, is Mel, uh, some of the characterizations and them finding the feet. It's a really clever idea, Paradise Towers, um, and it's quite quite dark, but it's not quite there, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Dragonfire. Awesome. I have big, big memory of Dragonfire, but there's better ones, and uh, that's where to go from. The introduction of Ace. I mean, Ace, when I was uh, eight years old, was cool as anything. You know what I mean? She was yeah. she was awesome, and this introduced her. I love the dragon. Even now, I think the dragon's quite cool. I know it's a bit rubbish, uh, <laughs> but I do love the, the idea of, of Dragonfire. I'm a big fan of it, but not a bigger fan as them of these other ones. Okay. The only one you didn't pick from season 25, The Happiness Patrol. I, it's a great one. Um, but again, it just didn't quite cut the six. I mean, I know there's not a mass amount of McCoy material. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, 12. So it's, it's just picking half of them. Happiness Patrol's ace. It's great. It's qu- it, it loses it a bit. I think this is one that was a tiny bit of padding, but a brilliant idea. Yeah. Battlefield. Battlefield's awesome. Shh. Shame. That's the greatest line. I was like, no way, she's good at... Oh, no, she's not. Um, but- I think we all did. <laughs> but, I mean, Battlefield, again, it's brilliant. It, it's so hard to pick out this the final season of Doctor Who because this, the whole... There's not... I suppose, well, there's an arc. There's, there's the, ace, the ace arc, if you see what I mean. Uh, but, yeah, it just, just couldn't quite quite make the final cut. It's, although it's a brilliant idea, brilliantly written, I think the production on this, because it's quite a massive idea didn't quite pay off okay and finally survival Um, because it's too sad to talk about (laughs) because it was the final episode of classic who um i even knew i mean i was i'd have been 10 i think when it's aired i even i knew from that speech at the end that was that was it for doctor who i just i just knew and it was sadly um but obviously we're all happy now as we've you know got it back on tv and we've even in the dark times we had a lot of brilliant output of material of doctor who but yeah, survival, just too sad to talk about, Rob, but a great adventure all the same. <laughs> now, you were a great age to be watching these as they went out, eight for the first series, I guess nine, and then ten. Yeah. How long do you think you would have stuck with the show if it had continued? Uh, me personally, at the time, I mean, I, I, I think it did like what most people have, have done. Um, I didn't fall out of love with Doctor Who, no way at all. But I think probably towards my late teens... I sort of I didn't sell any of my videos or anything like that. I just stopped watching it mm. if you see what I mean so it was for me it was the perfect age to be now I know I was speaking to like um, Craig who we mentioned before on Proctor um, particularly he was at that sort of age where I sort of felt love, love with Doctor Who sort of the eight, 17, 18 and he just went right off it 
if you see what I mean. So yeah. I, I'm really happy I was <laughs> I was a bit younger and had the sort of, you know, watching through the guise of a child. I mean, I love Colin Baker as well when I was a kid. I don't really remember much about it, if you see what I mean, uh, at the time. But I loved that. And it's only watching rewatching it again now that McCoy's era becomes, like I say, in my opinion, the best, <laughs> which, you know, which a lot of people argue me about, which is fine. Um, but Colin Baker is just, it's, it's awful. When we were trying to pick some Baker stuff to review for Prog to Who, we picked um, Revelation of the Daleks, which I remember being brilliant, and The Two Doctors, which I remember being great, and they were awful, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's really hard work doing uh, Colin Baker. Really? <laughs> Bless him. And it's it's not him. It, he's a great actor. He's a lovely man. It, it was just a, it was just it was just a really bad bad time for Doctor Who, and then this came along and it was brilliant. Yeah. Well, look, I was fourteen for the last McCoy series, and then I was fifteen when the next one would have gone out. And by fifteen, I was ready to sort of. Have a, have a rest from it, you know. Partly because yeah. I've been such a, a ferret for it in the years past as a, as a fan. And, and also partly, you know, you, you're a year, year off getting your driver's license, you're interested in girls. I was just heading off in other directions anyway. So yeah. for, for me, the break came at a, not a bad time either. I think it, I think it needed it. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to have seen, you know, season 27 or series 27. Uh, absolutely. I don't think what what they've put out is is what it would have been. I know they did a bit on... You know they did it on big finish, yeah. but that's not what we would have seen. And I, I would have, I think, would have got it. Would have got even better, um, but unfortunately, it didn't. Yeah, no, it's 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 very sad. There's there's that promise of a, a lost opportunity there. You know that that will stay with us always. I think. Yeah, but that, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's that it's it's the bit that keeps you wanting more. I suppose I don't know. You know what I mean? It's the bit that keeps fans talking or people talking to Andrew Cartman and Ben Richards asking them what could have been. You know, it's uh, and that's kind of gives it a bit more of an exciting angle because they can sort of add bits to it or give you a bit more or change it slightly because it was never there. Do you know what I mean? It makes it a bit more special. What about the McCoy Doctor um, still sort of sits with you and resonates and, and makes you think of him as being a great Doctor compared to what we've had before or, or even since now? Uh, McCoy is because he's my doctor, really. If you see, I mean, I think that's when you properly get you, you watch Doctor Who, but you get properly on board, you know, towards eight, nine, ten, and then after then you, you know, after then you start understanding it more, and the more you grow up, the more you get out of it, the more it changes. Uh, I think McCoy is not the best actor in the world, but my my doctor, I like my doctor to be like Patrick Troughton, like Matt Smith, like Sylvester McCoy the sort of cheeky chappy fun guy with a hell of a lot of mystery and literally when he turns you know when he turns the tables he leads you in this false insecurity by bumbling about and that to me is Doctor Who when he sort of turns and just takes control of the whole situation and he knows what's going on and he's going to put it all right that to me is Doctor Who and them three actors do that for Doctor Who um, but because he's my my growing up Doctor he's my favourite some of his acting is brilliant yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. some of his acting's not so great but Time constraints, etc. Um, you know, poor direction will add to that. You know, the scenes where he does this sort of like angry, weird face stuff because he had quite a, you know, he did comedy acting and he had, he obviously was quite a flexible guy, you know, for sort of the, the stunts and stuff like that. A bit of a clown, if you see what I mean. Mm. But it, 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 it was out of context sometimes for his doctor. But that's, that's just me, you know, saying little bits because someone like Troughton, for example, he never put in a bad performance because he was such a good actor. Yeah. He was a proper actor. He could act in New Who now. Uh, obviously, Matt Smith's a brilliant actor, but McCoy, not the not the greatest of actors that we've had in Doctor Who, but a brilliant Doctor and a brilliant portrayal of the Doctor. Yeah, talking about you know not having enough time, 
I think there's a scene in Ghostlight, I think you might have even mentioned this on, on Prog to Who, where he gets up and he's he's talking and he he's just not nailing it at all. But it's no it's the only chance he had to do the scene and he hadn't really rehearsed it, I don't think. Not at, no, not at all. They just sort of said, right, we need to just get this done for tomorrow because of time constraints. So he just did his whatever he thought was right. But the director just picked up, picked him up, and said, look, it's not, it's not, it's not in keeping with the character of the Doctor, which I've been directing and directed before because he he had done Anna Wearing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily McCoy's fault because he could feel like that what he's doing is awesome acting. Do you know what I mean? He's the, this is the best acting and whatever but you can see when you're looking through the television bit of the camera nah it's not very good maybe try doing this Sylvester kind of thing but it is what it is it's on there it's film but uh, that that very small percentage of stuff like that you know the, the good stuff far outweighs that tiny little bit do you think season 27 would have been it for Sylvester I think it might have been the end of his contract or the extension on his contract do you think he would have been a four year doctor uh, it would have been and I think it would have taken you know, they would have had a probably a new companion by the end as well. But it would have sort of let that let that sort of relationship or where the doctor was taking Ace um sort of develop an end. I think that's what would you know, and with that I think Sylvester would have moved on because it comes across blatantly on screen and I know in real life that Sophie Aldred and Sylvester McCoy were very close. Mm-hmm. And and that's why they're so great together on screen. Brilliant companion and doctor pairing. Yeah, so I don't think I need to ask uh, whether you prefer Mel or Ace. I think it's Ace. <laughs> it's really bad, but it's it's not Bonnie Langford because I think she's you know I think she's great. When you see her in other stuff that's more suited to her, um, she's she's better, right? But obviously, the character that was written was awful. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Right, you're going to be a fitness Nazi <laughs> and make try and make the fat doctor lose weight. It's a bit like <laughs> brilliant. It, this is going to be going nowhere from get the get go. You know so. Not not her fault, but not the best. But Ace, although she has these, like, I mean, the thing about Ace is, I think the thing with Ace is her profanity, should we call it, so, like, bog brain and stuff like that. Mm. What else is she going to say? She's not going to say, you, uh, I'm going to deploy your bleeping machine. Okay, or let me get it out. It. <laughs> She's not going to say, you f***ing wanker. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or something like that. She's <laughs> So the, the, that stuff isn't... Because kids are saying, obviously, the, the rude ones, not bog brain and that. Um, it's sometimes a bit out of context. But it was it was a sort of insults and lang- lang- what, what people perceived to be the cool language of the time. Okay, I'm going to ask you the hardest question now in, in the whole uh, time we've had together here. Ooh. If you could summarise the Seventh Doctor era in one word, what would it be? Um, magical. Nice. Yeah. Nice. But most Doctor Who is, isn't it? So, but this is a bit more myster- mysteriously magical. As in, I put a hyphen in it. Is that a hyphen? Yeah, okay. <laughs> hyphen. Mysteriously magical. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I feel the same, and I, I think McCoy was a very interesting Doctor. Um, you know, not just because of the age I watched it at, even when I watch it now, and I think of his other roles, say in in The Hobbit. You know, where he essentially yeah. acts as the same character. He does, yeah, it's um, You know, it just seems to be the way he is, and it is it is interesting to watch. It might not be the best acting in the world, he might not be the best character actor in the world, but it's interesting. You know, it's it is mysterious. Very much so. And that and that's that's brought in by 
Cartmel in the writers that he was bringing in at the time, and a whole new, fresh approach to to writing Doctor Who, with a totally different, and I mean totally different generation of writers. There was no of, none of the old guard in there who did perceive it to be a joke. These guys were taking it seriously, and they'd grown up and loved Doctor Who. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and it, and it shows, and it, and it's like in the in the new series now, where a lot of fans are involved, and they want to you know put their best foot forward and do what's right by the show too and most of the time they do in fact all the time they do i know like sometimes we can have a negative spin on stuff when we review it at the time but let's be honest the output that they're putting out in new here has been absolutely nothing but outstanding um both visually script wise cast characters the works it's been it's stunning it's a very very lucky time to be alive as a doctor who fan Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bob. It's been excellent to run through the era of the Seventh Doctor. Been my absolute pleasure, Rob. Thank you. Well, here we are, folks, at the end of the Sixth Doctor Who show. Can you believe that? My thanks, as always, to Bob, Jim, Ian, Kevin, Matt and Lex for their contributions to the show. And if you want to contribute to the show or you just want to say hi to us, why not write in hello at the dwshow.net will reach us and we'd love to read out what you have to say on the show. Now, before we go, um, you probably enjoyed some of the the readings from wallowing in our own Welchmerts that Bob and I uh, went through when we're talking about the Seventh Doctor era. Of course, we couldn't go through half of what's in the book, a quarter of what's in the book, one-tenth of what's in the book. There's there's just so much in there. But I thought I'd just leave you with one final piece, a piece I find quite funny. It's to do with um, Silver Nemesis. One of the incongruities of this story is the fact that whilst the Doctor pimps up Ace's ghetto blaster to super-duper proportions, he fails to do similar with its method of playing music. It still uses cassettes, for goodness sake. Cassettes? or tapes, as we called them, were just rubbish. They were always getting mangled up in the player, or would snap when being played, so why on earth didn't the Doctor take the opportunity to improve on this design flaw? Had he not considered the USB port, or to push the compact disc? What kind of improvement has he actually made if the music is still being played via a stinky old tape? He included a space tracker transmitter and that globe hologram generating thing, but neglected to add a CD player. Perhaps tapes are all that Ace has with her, given that she departed Iceworld in a hurry, but you would have thought that the Doctor would have converted them to a more stable format if he was prepared to go to the extent of creating a fantastic new device to play them on. He's managed to improve his pocket watch by adding a digital display. Perhaps... He just doesn't really care about Ace. And on that note, we'll see you next month. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash The DW Show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.